Hello party people, David here. Uh, just a quick note once again that unfortunately this is an episode where uh, the fidelity of our audio recording was uh, damaged at some point, so we had to use our Zoom audio. Fortunately, this episode's audio quality from the Zoom call is a lot better than episode 5, so hopefully a much more pleasant uh, listening experience. But if you hear a few extra uh, sniffles or microphone bumps or notice that we seem to be talking over each other a lot more, uh, that that is why. Um, but hopefully you're still able to enjoy the episode. Uh, so here it is. Hello and welcome to the symmetrical seventh episode. I think of... it's human. <laughs> That's that was a, it was a coded <laughs> reference to the work we're discussing today. But welcome to the symmetrical seventh episode of the comics podcast that makes you. Ooh, what does it make you do? <laughs> um, laugh for sure. Well, <laughs> I suspect that might be a subject of some debate. <laughs> I'm, I'm speaking to you specifically. Oh, me specifically? <laughs> Not to the listener. Okay, well, yes, the podcast that makes me laugh. The certainly. podcast that makes you record it. Yes. These are all, these are all very, like, it's, it's like hyper-targeted advertising to mm-hmm. you. <laughs> One of the two listeners of this show. <laughs> but of course, it's got the runs. It's... The podcast that's quite honestly it's sweeping the nation there's no other way to describe it um as part of its mandated community service hours <laughs> yes much like scott mcleod the podcast is on a 50 state tour <laughs> do you know about this i i saw a reference to it at the end of the book i didn't do any research into it though. well it was embarked upon as a part of i guess like a publicity tour for the work that we are discussing today not reinventing comics i know the title it's making comics that's right the third uh, entry i guess in the non-fiction trilogy of blanking comics yes what were you going to say uh i was gonna say do we introduce ourselves i can't remember i have no idea <laughs> i can't remember if we have done that or not i'm sure in episode zero yes I assume most people are binging these so they remember. <laughs> <laughs> they start at zero and they just hit them all in one day. Very generous. Well, you're Christopher and I'm David, certainly. I believe sure. uh, we don't introduce ourselves in the Sculptor episode and then make a bunch of jokes about how I am also David. <laughs> right. We're the bad boy brothers of podcasting. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. The, who's, who are the equivalent uh, bad boys of another field? Bad boy brothers. Um, the Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. <laughs> They were the bad boy brothers of baseball, which is mm. a lot better. Yeah. Um, oh, the guys with the houses. You the know? property brothers? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Isn't one of them married to Zoe Deschanel now or something? Mm. The baddest move of them all. <laughs> she uh, she broke she broke New York City bylaws by singing in Central Park. Wait, what? <laughs> At the end of L. Oh, right. <laughs> Oh, anyways, so we are talking about making comics ostensibly. Yes, published in 2006, um, which I thought was... In, so, yes, as we as I said, this is the third entry in the sort of nonfiction trilogy, but 
Scott says at the beginning that he considers this to be the true successor to understanding comics with reinventing as a bit of an outlier. Yes. You can, you can already see he's starting to disown <laughs> reinventing comics. <laughs> There's a really uh, great gag about it in this book where he talks about convent. I think it's when he's talking about conventions, but he depicts himself being approached by a fan who's like, I love the first book. I'm uh, still getting through that second one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, but it, yes, as I was reading it, I was kind of thinking about it in terms of like, if understanding comics is like comics 101, this book is kind of like comics 201. Yes. Or like a sort of more career focus. <laughs> like if the, the first one was like comics theory, and then this is sort of applying a lot of that theory into practice, I think I would say. Yeah. I think I think it's still like obviously he references a lot of concepts from understanding comics, but I think it still is like surprisingly uh, like form oriented. Just you're, like you're right, it's about it's about applying the uh, the the techniques of making comics, but I, it's still surprisingly kind of invisible RD. Yes, I would definitely agree with that. I do also feel like this is far more at least in, as i read it more textbooky than understanding comics is how would you do would you agree with that um yeah i'm not sure uh maybe it's a I, matter I don't of know like, if i would it's it's more like it's just a textbook about a different subject or a slightly different subject yeah and maybe it's that the subject matter doesn't as directly apply to at least me i would assume you as well since Neither of us are artists, as we've said yes. many times, but uh, but we'll get into that. Um, yes, so this is published in 2006, which I thought was an interesting time because, you know, you have Reinventing Comics sort of being published at the time when a lot of stuff is about to change with a lot of stuff that Scott talks about. And it's interesting. I mean, it's not like much of this has really aged badly, per se, but it's interesting that it comes basically right before what, what I would consider like Iron Man and Dark Knight is 2008. Yes. And that's, I think, very drastically changes the world of comics as a whole. Certainly the like pop culture perception of like superhero comics and, and comics as IP. Yeah, because like, you know, there were superhero comics before, but it, it felt like a bit of a dying breed at this point, probably. Um, was Watchmen 2008 as well? I believe Watchmen was 2009. Um, and so, so 300 is 2007. Yeah. Which is another, uh, maybe more uh, sea change in the movie world than the broader comics world. But yeah, I also a, an influential. I, I don't really recall anything about like public discourse regarding 300 as far as like, and did you know it's based on a comic other than like that? Yeah. To be like, and originally it was a comic, which is like, you know, <laughs> so is like road to perdition. Um, <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly, I think had more of a, a, an effect on movies as far as the style of that movie than it had anything to do with comics. Right. But we use, yeah. So basically, like I said, Iron Man and Dark Knight, that's sort of the sea change. I mean, obviously, the far reaching effects of Iron Man are still being felt to this day. Dark Knight, probably, a li but I would also argue that Dark Knight did a lot in terms of legitimizing yeah. 
comic book movies in terms of like critical discourse as well. Yeah, it was uh, it, it kind of the like comics aren't for kids anymore moment, but for like comic movies, <laughs> it's like, look, superheroes, they can have like real movies made about them too, not yeah. just like X-Men. Yeah, maybe maybe more so like comics aren't for nerds than comics aren't for kids. Because right. like the X-Men movies aren't really for kids, but they are very comic booky, I would say, in sort of their structuring and tone. Whereas Dark Knight is like very much uh michael mann <laughs> rip off or whatever <laughs> that it's funny you say that because i feel that the general feeling amongst comics fans about the x-men movies are that they are not very comic booky and are kind of like actively trying to distance themselves from comics maybe not stylistically but i think plot wise it does or maybe maybe it's just an action movie thing but i uh, yeah, yeah i mean sort it, of the, <laughs> The the last thing is uh, like the the final action set piece is that Magneto has built a machine in the Statue of Liberty's torch that's going to turn everyone in the world into mutants. So. Right, exactly. That kind <laughs> of thing is what I'm thinking of. Less so, you know, obviously it's very Ultimates styling, like black leather, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But Grant Morrison wrote their uh, new X-Men run like shortly after the first X-Men movie came out and there's a document that they always republish in like the deluxe editions and stuff called the Morrison manifesto where he was basically like the movies got it right. Black leather is the way to go. (laughs) And like famously in his run all or sorry, their run, all the characters are wearing like motorcycle jackets with like big yellow X's on the back. Which I do like. It's a good look. The, is it, is it Joss Whedon's new X-Men where like, it's like, the jackets with like the big X, like the no, no, X that's, in the middle. That's Grant Morrison. Or is that Grant Morrison? Uh, Joss Whedon's run is astonishing and like actively disowns the jackets. Like the first issue <laughs> features like this big group shot of them all like walking into the Cerebro room in their superhero costumes, and Cyclops is saying something like, "We're superheroes. Let's dress like it." <laughs> Basically, uh, <laughs> I do like, hate the costumes the- are back, baby. <laughs> I do hate the way that comics will like actively comment so heavily. I mean, we were just talking about WandaVision, which, you know, we won't get into spoilers, but no spoilies. We were talking about the way that that show sometimes like sort of is very actively and very clearly speaking to the audience Mm -hmm. in a way that I find difficult at times. It's definitely a little like fourth wall winky in a way that I agree. I, I often find annoying, but um we, we won't get too much into WandaVision. I do feel like it's necessary for some aspects of that show. Yeah, especially since that show is so metatextual already. But <laughs> let's talk about making comics. So I'll start with my personal favorite uh, segment of the show. I believe it's now titled Just What Is Going On Here. <laughs> As inspired by the section in uh, Understanding Comics? Just so. Um, so... I don't know what cover you have for making comics, but I have, or if there are, you know, different versions, but I've only ever seen one. Yeah. So it's Scott, a visibly older Scott, most notably he has sort of gray gray at the temples. Yes. He's gray at the temples in the back. And then we don't, you don't really see it as much on the cover, but in the, in the book itself, he has very visibly (laughs) drawn himself rounder, (laughs) uh, especially around the middle intentionally so i believe in a in a very scott way yes 
Um, yeah, but it's funny. It's, like, did you notice he has like a character design sheet early on where he like shows his new model that like he has the the understanding comics like little avatar there with notes that say um, make rounder question mark and then in brackets or lose weight to match. <laughs> <laughs> a good bit. I mean, I'll, I'll well, we'll get back to my famous segment shortly, but. I will say that Scott's back, baby. <laughs> <laughs> he, I mean, just scrolling, like looking through the table of the uh, table of contents and like some of the things that pop up there. Yeah, he's he's going wild in this one. He really, it really feels like he's just like having fun. Like the drawing himself <laughs> as different objects bit is like literally like every page has at least one of those, and sometimes multiple. Like it'll be like three back to back, but it's like you could do this. Or this, or even this, and then in each, <laughs> in each panel, he will have drawn himself as a different entity, mm-hmm. uh, which is really just a treat for me. Do you have a, a standout favorite? Um, I sent you a few. Um, him as a planet is always funny to me. Mm-hmm. I like how very round he gets. Yes. Um, the skeleton is not. Uh, I'm a big fan of when he draws himself as Snoopy right around the typewriter yes, on top of the doghouse. Uh, there's some we'll we'll probably come across some while we're paging through this during the course of our discussion but yes yeah, so the it's almost like the that one issue of zot the um what's that guy's name ronnie the ronnie issue oh, yeah. of zot, where the cover is that they're sort of dungeons and dragons table and it's rendered in that very realistic style right um but it's you know it's presumably scott's hand drawing this comic which is quite similar to understanding comics where each sort of panel will have different art from inside the book that illustrates some example of what he's talking about. Yeah. And then underneath you have Scott sitting at his draftsman's table that we <laughs> get a, a deep dive on later in the comic. Yes. Very, very circular. Uh, the image depicting him sitting at the <clears throat> table, drawing the image, which we are seeing depicted. Right. Uh, the drost effect almost as you'd call it. Um, do you know what that is? Is that like the picture in picture in picture thing? Yeah, where it's like the on the cover of the comic book, someone is holding, holding a comic the, book yeah. and the comic book is that cover. Right. One of my favorite bits. Um, <laughs> but yes, and then also it's subtitled, interestingly, Storytelling Secrets of Comics, Manga, and Graphic Novels, um, which sort of pretends... Where's the lie? Well, true. But I I think it portends that Scott is very excited about um, manga because, like, he's an OG manga nerd. And at this point, like, between reinventing... It's in English now! (laughs) (laughs) They they translated them! Uh, Between reinventing and making comics, like, uh, the scene has drastically changed. Like, obviously... I think around probably mid to late nineties is when you have Toonami in the U S and it's Canadian equivalent for us where, you know, anime is starting to be shown on Western television more regularly and it's gaining a more dedicated following. Yes. And Um, we'll of course be talking about Marvel's tsunami imprint in a few weeks. Well, yes, we certainly (laughs) shall. I, we'll, we'll, we'll get into this when we talk about the sort of section of this that dives into manga, but a very big thing around this time, the 
draw a normal comic that looks like manga oh yeah big time i I did find it very uh disorienting (laughs) to see like insert panels from like naruto and inuyasha it's (laughs) like oh right it's 2006 (laughs) right it's really it's prime time because as scott elucidates uh in the book manga is now basically the like top selling comic or you know, collection of comics or whatever, whatever the exact terminology you'd use would be mm-hmm. segment or something like that. But manga has definitely taken off in a big way. Yeah. They're dominating point. the market. Yeah. Um, but let's jump in. Uh, it's structured quite similarly to understanding comics. Um, <laughs> it does start, it starts with like an introductory part, which is described in the sort of title title text as pre Scott face. Oh, it's a pre face. Now I understand. Yeah. I was like pre Scott. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't initially pick up that on that either and thought it was, and it probably also is this, but was just a way of saying like, don't worry, the pictures are coming right. soon. Yeah. But, it's, but it's, first you know, some words. Yes, exactly. Before my face gets in here. <laughs> um, yes, but it's yeah. So the chapter that's divided into, are writing with pictures, which is basically about like how to use images to communicate your story almost. Um, Stories for humans, which is about a lot about character design and sort of drawing expressively. Mm -hmm. Chapter three is the power of words, which is about words Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and especially how you combine those with. Yeah, use of words and art together. Right. Chapter four is world building, which I thought was a very interesting chapter. Um, yeah, I, I was surprised that he gave it its own like full chapter. Yeah, because it makes sense because it doesn't quite fit in. I guess you would fall under chapter two, the stories for humans chapter. Um, but yes, and there's a lot of talk about like sort of environments and perspective in a way that feels very filmic. Yeah, um, I was going to say it, a lot of this stuff like we've spoken before about had like the comparison points between comics and film, but like the fact that he has to explain the 180 rule in this book as like, you yes, know, this, and doesn't, the, and doesn't it, even call it that. No, he doesn't. Um, but yeah, it's just funny because he's previously kind of resisted comparisons between comics and film. But when you lay it out like this and have to explain some of the techniques, like there's no denying that, when you're using images to tell a story like this, there are like camera angles basically. And he refers to like the camera. Um, Yes. That's what I noticed is in understanding, like other than sort of being like, you could almost even envision the panel as a camera. Like Mm. he says it in like a very basic way like that, but I feel like very actively resists saying like, put your camera here or whatever. Whereas in this one, he's just like, yeah, like, you could shoot from a lower angle. Yeah. And like Establishing like shot, vanishing point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then we have chapter five, which is just about pens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the hardest chapter for sure as a person who does not make art, has no desire to make art uh, very, like I, in a weird way, the most technical chapter. Yes, and I, it made me think back to reinventing. When he was talking about digital stuff, he was sort of like, I'm not going to talk about like the way that things are now because I expect them to change so quickly. Mm -hmm. But then in this chapter, like he seems, it's like he gets very specific about like, get this type of bristle board and like 
all that stuff, which I guess is a less is less likely to change than like the state of computers in the year 2000. But yeah, I also feel like how many people are still drawing physically? Probably not. Uh, I think you'd be surprised. (laughs) Really? Yeah. A lot of if you're putting a percentage on it of like professional comics artists. Uh boy, that's that's trickier, but uh, a lot of artists still work in physical media, if only because selling their original art is like another mm. huge revenue stream. Right. Because thanks thanks to the work of pioneers like Scott, uh, but also like the image guys and Neil Adams and, and many other advocates over the years, it's long standing practice at this point that the original art is the property of the artists at like all the publishers. Um, but most of them aren't very sentimental about their art. So being able to have like original pages that you can sell, like original art sells to collectors for like hundreds of dollars for, sh- for pages that like don't feature any action or like have a shot of the, the main character, like from behind. So if you get like a really splashy page that features like a signature moment from a run or like a really good action shot of a really popular character that can sell for like thousands. Cheers. Good for them. <laughs> Get <Truly>. paid. Um, <laughs> yes. And then chapter six is entitled Your Place in Comics, which is sort of, it's a little more esoteric, certainly than the last chapter, yeah. <laughs> but more about sort of finding your style and finding your authorial voice. And th- I feel like this <laughs> this chapter is just like his musings that he didn't really have a place to fit anywhere else. Yeah. It's a, it's a little uh, reinventing-y. <laughs> yes, it, it definitely is. But it's also like, yeah, it, it just feels like he just had a few ideas that he wanted to yeah. talk about. <laughs> the the like few last little manifesto points. Not to say that they're not interesting, but no, I like I like them. I, I think it's, a lot of them the... are more interesting than what he talks about in reinventing. Yeah, it's just not as like focused as the rest of the book. Yeah, certainly not. Um, and then chapter seven, which is titled "Making Comics," is basically just a wrap up. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's bounce back here and go to chapter one. <laughs> <laughs> there's also uh another good scott is when he's talking about big font and he draws himself <laughs> tiny with a really big mouth like leaning back and shouting at the heavens <laughs> yes um so where do we want to start here i mean you know he sort of has a similar introduction he talks about the idea that like you know he's <laughs> he he's sort of going over the he's, he's formalizing a lot of the aspects that might be sort of more intuitive for a lot of artists, I think, Mm -hmm. which is a big part of understanding comics as well. Like he's sort of putting to paper and formalizing these ideas that sort of have always been in the air and that people know about, but maybe we're not communicated in as, as focused a way. Yes. Uh, I like the way he puts it at the end of the introduction (laughs) says there are no rules and here they are. Uh, It's like a funny way to lead into it. Like it's very classic Scott to sort of undercut his own authority and be like, I'm just a regular schmo too. Like I, I put my drawing pants on one leg at a time, like everybody else. Now here's a very authoritative book about like how to make comics. Yes. And he gets into that sort of at the end where, you know, he talks about the idea of these, these four camps, he kind of puts um, art or not artists, but, comics creators into um and then he sort of talks about how a lot of so one of the um camps that he puts them into are the animists which are people who are 
devoted to content focused on stories, characters, and emotions. And he sort of talks about how by, by making the book, he is basically <laughs> providing a starting point and telling everyone to be an animist. Right. Um, because, you know, he talks about how other groups, like they don't really have an interest in like following quote unquote, the rules of comics, or they want to like stick to their own style and things like that. So I think the idea is that this is sort of providing like the base layer and then you build upon that layer with your own style. So we start with, he, he starts by talking about the sort of idea. Yes. The very, very basic comic stuff, like the use of sequential images to tell a story. Um, He goes over the panel transitions again, which are from understanding comics um, but yes, I mean, <laughs> a lot of my notes for this are like just talking about what's going on and be like, and then Scott goes into a lesson about this. <laughs> well, yes, he so he for this section, he lays out five kind of critical aspects for making sure a story can be understood, which are the choice of moment, choice of frame, choice of image, choice of word and choice of flow, like panel flow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then basically proceeds to elucidate uh, how these things work first through like a short story, such as it is about a guy finding a key and opening a door. And then later there's that story about, like he he writes kind of like a mini throwaway crime story about an undercover cop. Um, right. But these, yeah, this is where it kind of feels to me the most sort of comics 201, which is to say that like um, where, where understanding comics is like a very nuts and bolts sort of look at how um, sequential images work as far like the the whole notion of closure this is kind of taking it to the next step of of making it like here's how to make closure as easy as possible for your reader like here's how to make sure that the closure that they perform is the one that you intend for them to perform yeah that's the thing it's the a lot of it's it's a lot of uh, the same ideas of understanding or you know the same sense of breaking comics down into these sort of base elements, but with a much greater focus on how to apply those in your comics rather than just like, isn't it cool that these things exist? Uh, Like, you know, he goes over the same idea of scene transition that he goes over in understanding comics, but I feel like that book is, it feels more geared towards a reader and sort of a, a, like reading with a critical eye Whereas this book is more about how to use that knowledge in making comics. Yeah, I I still... Because that's what it's called. Yes. (laughs) I do still feel that it's a valuable read for the sort of like more form-minded reader. Just because it gives you sort of an appreciation for the craft. um, And and I guess sort of equips you better to look at a well-made comic and be able to say like, I understand more clearly now how like some of the art that's behind this beyond just like making pretty drawings that look good to my lizard brain, <laughs> like register as neat or, or like aesthetically pleasing um, to be able to work through them and, and understand like why and how the artist has decided to put things with the way they are. Um, as far as like these, these choices that he's describing here. Yeah. And a lot of the, like a lot of his tips and sort of things he talks about 
I feel like aren't totally exclusive to the comics medium for sure. I mean, a lot of the storytelling stuff mm-hmm. definitely translates across media. Um, but then there are, there are also, you know, obviously things to like how to draw certain things, like the ways that you can position things in panels to convey different ideas. Like he has the idea of sort of like the space between characters and how like putting something on like one side of the panel or the other can convey different things to the reader. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it is like, you know, the stuff about character design and creation, which we get into later, um, and the stuff about, you know, sort of shot composition and things like that, I think definitely apply to film, like we were saying. But then also, like, I feel like pretty much any type of storytelling, like, it's at least worth a read. Um, yeah. And and I think by extension, that really shows you what you can do with comics because you start to see, like, you see the overlap with other storytelling media and then you start to see like, oh, here's what you can do that you can only do in comics. Like the way you can design characters to have like a distinct visual style. Yeah. is something that you can only do in comics and like can convey so much. Yeah. I, uh, I'm just looking at the page where he talks about like specificity and, and th- I'm thinking it, like this, it kind of encapsulates what I appreciate about a lot of elements of this book, which is it takes concepts that he uh, has established from understanding comics and then kind of um, develops them further or or fleshes them out a bit. So like I'm thinking of how in understanding comics, he talks about sort of the, the representative power of the cartoon and how um, it only takes a few lines to sort of evoke um, something in the, in the mind of the reader. But then here he sort of says basically so the the examples he gives are can you draw a moped clearly enough that it tells readers that they're not looking at a motorcycle or a bicycle can you draw an expression of mock disapproval that won't be mistaken for the real thing can you draw a scorpion that's clearly about to strike can you draw a picture of mark twain that doesn't end up looking like albert einstein (laughs) um and then he he uh, goes back to the Feasel well, <laughs> puts up a, a Matt Feasel drawing of uh, of some people at like a, a meeting and there's a shoe on the table. And he says, if I, well, there's several things on the table, but he says, if I asked you to draw a clock, a water bottle or a shoe in just a few specific lines, how specific could you get? Where he's showing off like Matt Feasel is not drawing a photorealistic shoe, but he's also mm-hmm. drawing a very specific kind. Like you can immediately tell that it's, it's like a take on a converse all-star high top, but not because it's like so realistic. Like he's, he's saying like Fiesel has mastered the ability to use a few lines to communicate, not just a shoe, but like a specific shoe, like a recognizable shoe. Yes. And I think he, I think he really admires that ability, like in more simple cartoonists, like he, he uses peanuts as a reference mm-hmm. a number of times in this comic. And yeah, basically the idea that it's like, you can have something with like no background and like only a few lines, but still conveys what you want to, um, you know, which, which again, we've talked about this before, I think maybe in our understanding comics episode, the idea that the general sort of artistic sensibility, I think has shifted away from like how much detail can you put into your work and more about like how effectively can you communicate while not having to sort of overload things with a lot of detail. And I right. think, I think he sort of handles both sides of the coin pretty well. You know, we get into the, 
the establishing shot stuff later with the tree, which is like a really nicely rendered scene. Um, and obviously has a lot of detail in it. Yep. Yeah. I, I also like throughout this chapter, basically it's just like the things that separate a like total amateur, I guess, or, or someone who really doesn't have any experience with the craft from someone who, uh, like knows it knows how to work with the comics format. Like I'm looking at things like the panel flow section. Uh, and this is the kind of thing where like, if you hang out in the kind of places on the internet where I do, where amateur creators uh, are often looking for places to showcase their work. Um, it's just like clear how much this kind of education about like comics is needed in just like simple things like panel flow that as a reader, by design, we don't really think about because the goal that like he talks about the reading flow and the last thing you want generally, unless it's for a specific effect is to break the reading flow. You want people to move basically seamlessly from panel to panel in such a way that um, they like even forget that they're, they're taking in the art and the words separately or like where it feels like an experience that they're in, which he talks about a bit later as well. Um, and I don't think that people always appreciate how much like a bad panel flow can break up something like that. Uh, and, or, or like how easily people fall into it. And it, the same thing is true about like when he talks about um, like the dynamic panels and, and how, if you have too many crazy angles, too many things like spilling over the panel border, how distracting that can be. Um, and there's an extent to which it's kind of like picking nits. Like when I, when I look at some of the examples of, of those things that he has in this chapter, I'm not like totally lost. Like it's not great as far as like, you know, there's a, it's busy. It's not appealing necessarily to look at necessarily to look at, but it's not like completely unintelligible, but things like the panel flow, like will really take you out of it if it's done badly. So I think it's just the kind of thing that like this book addresses because he looked around and was kind of like, no one is telling new creators how to do this stuff and it's not really fair to expect them to just like figure it out themselves um especially when like more and more people are interested in making comics and as he kind of alludes to later like it's it only kind of gets harder and harder to get into because the way this that people entered comics previously aren't the ways that stay like how you enter comics going forward um so I I just feel like it's he establishes pretty early on this as a valuable resource for people who want to tell stories through comics um, because he provides so much information that amongst pros is just understood, but for readers isn't necessarily immediately obvious or intuitive. Yeah, and that sort of goes back to the idea that like comics is its own medium. It's not just art exactly because, you know, like he he talks about sort of the idea that there are plenty of books that teach you how to draw ostensibly, you know, obviously they don't teach you how to find your own style or anything like that. But even if you do have your own artistic style, that doesn't mean that you can really effectively create a comic because the way that sort of the art is juxtaposed and put together. And like you said, the flow of it is so important to comics in a way that like is very difficult to understand intuitively, I think, and probably just comes with experience um, but yes, I, I think that this, <laughs> this makes a lot of sense for him to write. Like it's an instructional book, but it's about the sort of 
the invisible, like you said, the invisible art, the things that people don't necessarily see right off the top when they read a comic that go into what makes a comic sort of work or flow. Yeah. Yeah. They're like theoretical principles. Yeah. Um, I'm just continuing to page through looking at like, he talks about this balance between clarity and intensity. This maybe is an unfair question to ask you as someone who has not read as many comics and mostly has been reading Scott McLeod comics, who I feel like generally skews fairly heavily towards the clarity side. <laughs> but do you have a preference like uh, as far as like the clarity to intensity spectrum? Yeah, I think I tend to default more towards the clarity side. I mean, it depends on the situation also, which is something that he gets into that the idea that all of these things are sort of, you know, tools in a toolkit that all have their, their place and their uses. Um, you know, a lot of what he talks about is um, it within the manga section and sort of mentions a, a several times is the way that manga often will very deliberately take its time to set the scene um, which I really like about manga and about like, you know, I like it in movies as well. I like when a movie has a really well composed establishing shot or set of establishing shots. Um, so I think generally speaking, like, you know, I'm not opposed to, you know, detail or anything, but I think generally, and you know, this applies to movies as well. I think I do favor the clarity more. So like, I don't really love super stylized stuff in most cases. Um, I think that, you know, and it's hard because it's then just like, is this because I don't appreciate like skilled art as much as I probably might be able to otherwise, if I were more artistically inclined. Um, but yeah, generally I think that the, the clarity end is more where I lie. Like I, I like simplicity. Same. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I agree on pretty much all fronts. I got slightly distracted because I was like looking at where he talks about the virtuoso drawing techniques and then, and then he's talking sort of throughout about how these are things that can be used sort of sparingly for effect. Like you have to, yeah, you have exactly. to establish it's about, it's about picking your spots. Yeah. And so I was trying to think of examples where like the virtuoso drawing skills are used. And the first thing that came to find for me was SpongeBob, like how they'll do those inserts <laughs> sometimes of like the much more realistic, usually like for handsome like some Squidward. Yeah. Like, well, like handsome Squidward, but I'm thinking more when it's like, I have the one particular image in mind. I have not seen a lot of SpongeBob, but I have one particular image in mind where it's like SpongeBob knocks on the door and Squidward's like been up all night and answers and you see him like first in the normal version, like looking very tired. And then SpongeBob is like, Squidward, are you okay? You look, uh... and then it like cuts back to Squidward <laughs> in like the hyper-realistic detail. And he's got like all this like disgusting mucus in his eyes and like a like gross five o'clock shadow. <laughs> yes, I know what you mean. I think there's things so much that where it's like, it's like dry SpongeBob <laughs> at some point when like SpongeBob <laughs> yeah. gets dried out. It's like you just like it like zooms in on his face and he just looks like this like most withered old man. Yeah, it just made me laugh because I could only think of times when it's used for like comedic effect where it takes something that's normally very cartoony and then suddenly renders it like much more detailed and realistic, <laughs> usually for like purposes of being disgusting. Yeah, I feel like that can also be a horror thing too. Maybe not just like rendering the same thing in more detail, but that's sort of like 
it's normal and then it's like very intense and detailed and that those mo you know I, I think that that that's the purpose of stuff like that like those moments are supposed to hit you differently than just normally going through it would indeed but um, um sorry go ahead Oh, I was just going to say, I'm I'm kind of like scrolling through to the end of the chapter. Did you look uh, at like the exercises that he includes in the book? I kind of browse through the, so at the end of every chapter, he has these notes. Um, where There's he sort a of, lot of, we, we talked about how reinventing comics is like uh, footnotes paradise. This is such a noted book that he doesn't even bother with the footnotes and just does end notes because there's yes. so many of them. Which makes sense, but that sort of gets back to that deal. It's like, this does feel the most like a textbook for me because it's like, he doesn't have enough room in just a comic to explain everything he wants to. So he has to just add pure text at the end, which I think is also, it's something we talked about in Reinventing where it was a problem that that book was so text heavy. And so by sort of shoving some of like the more intricate detail parts of it to the end, then he, you know, makes it a little more readable, but then also provides the detail if you want it. But, uh, but yes, I, I mostly browse these. I didn't really look too much at the exercises. I feel like if you are an aspiring comics creator, it seems to me like the exercises are like almost worth the price of admission alone. As far as like, uh, really turning the theory that he talks about into like concrete practice. Um, they're, there, I found especially these ones about like image selection and stuff really interesting. Um, so for example, the first uh, exercise that he suggests is for choice of moment. He says, pick a favorite movie and try roughly breaking down the story into just 16 key moments using only pictures, no words. Make sure they're clear enough and connected enough that a friend who hasn't seen the movie can tell you what's going on without any additional explanation question if you had to cut to just eight panels which ones would you drop how many panels would be enough to show all of the key moments of the story it's just like he he obviously has talked throughout the chapter about like eliminating superfluous panels and how um like closure is something that you can rely on your audience to do and and sort of lean on as far as uh allowing you to do sort of like addition by subtraction but to put it into practice like that like i was like man movies are pretty complicated like i don't know if i could break one down to just 16 um i'm depending on the movie but Mm -hmm. um so to encourage you to do that and then to take it further and be like all right now make it eight now like look at those eight panels and like what's the lowest number you can get it down to i think stuff like that is just really practical and and something that you can do to challenge yourself that really like yeah, would would crystallize the ideas for me in a way that thinking about them in theory is kind of like, I, I understand it intellectually, but I feel like going through any one of these would solidify it a lot more for me. Oh, yeah. Like, I think, I think we're, you know, obviously, like we said, we're coming at it from a different point of view. But I do think, like, if you are an artist or a comic book creator or anything like that, like, this is an amazing book. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I think it's really good. Like I really enjoyed it as it is just like from mostly looking at it from like a theory standpoint, but if you're looking at it as an educational tool or like an instructional guide, I think it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, I also like that in this section for like the, the exercises for this chapter, he included what I believe is the thing that he's always done for the daily improv web comics on his site. 
which is the Quanto comic, which he describes as uh, get a few black markers and some plain white paper. Um, he talks about doing this with a group of artists. I think he was just taking submissions from the public, but he says each artist takes a few minutes making a title logo on the top of the page. Titles should be something general like, is that your dad? Blind date. Ignore it and it will go away. Closed Mondays, etc. Avoid overly specific titles. Uh, and then each artist uh, trades pages and draws a one-page comic to match someone else's title, which I'm pretty sure he was doing that every day for like years with like, just like fans would, would send him an email for the daily improv with like a list of titles and he would choose one that he thought was funny and make a comic about it. Yeah, I, I really like that. And like, you know, like that's like with anything, like the adding constraints to yourself, especially like time constraints or, you know, limiting yourself in that way makes it a lot easier to sort of focus your creativity and gets away from the dreaded blank page. <laughs> I don't know who I was imitating there, but I feel like that's <laughs> something that comes up a lot with like writing advice and things like that is it's better to start with, you know, the more, the more constraints you put on yourself, the easier it is to channel that in a specific direction. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I, I agree. And just like the idea of like doing something like you don't necessarily have to be, um, working on like the project that you are you're trying to get done like sometimes you just need something to get the creative juices flowing it kind of reminds me of how like Stephen King always says that he writes like a thousand words a day no matter what um and obviously like probably only a fraction of that ever sees print but just like to be doing something and and working on your craft is uh is always helpful I'm sure that's why I record at least a thousand minutes every day of podcast yeah that's right um, <laughs> uh, let me make that a thousand seconds <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was gonna say i'm not sure that quite adds up um but yeah i mean especially for scott as well who you know doesn't publish many works you know like it's very very sporadically in his career has he worked on a monthly comic or a you know <laughs> a comic that is at least intended to be published regularly <laughs> um and so i think that probably doing those smaller exercises is very helpful for like, you know, when you're facing as daunting a project, like as either as any of these blanking comics um, in general are, I think that probably like it's good to just get out of your own head in that way, especially since these com these ones require so much like outside research and thought that goes so much deeper than just what's on the page like, I mean, he talks about it in another part that he quotes some other comics creators saying the amount of time between what you, like the amount of work between what ends up on the page is like 4,000 to one or something. So, you know, um, I don't know. I feel very short of breath right now. That's why I'm speaking weirdly. If <laughs> Are you having a heart like attack? Bad. No. Call 911. Call 99. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was, uh, busily moving on to the next chapter. Yes. I, I was going to say, I think we can move on to chapter two, which is, which is stories about humans. Stories for humans. Thank oh. you very much. Miscuzzi. Um, which begins with <laughs> a bunch of sperm. Yeah. Going and like egg. every good chapter. Yes. Uh, basically. So he boils it. To, it's, it, this is about like humanizing characters and telling stories about, people who are relatable sort of regardless of circumstance and, and 
helping readers to find uh, themselves in characters. Um, and the three tools that he talks about for doing that are character design, facial expressions, and body language. I want to immediately diverge here to ask you, did you look at the uh, online resources on his website? I did not know. So on the Making Comics page of his website, there's a bunch of stuff, including chapter five and a half, which is about like digital tools and stuff. There's mm-hmm. a apparently a YouTube channel. I didn't look at that, but about where he teaches like some digital lettering techniques, a tour blog from the uh, 50 States tour, <laughs> uh, the McLeod family podcast and the winter views, which he Whoa. describes as occasional podcast from the road and video interviews with comics creators around the country produced by his daughter, winter and edited by sky, his other daughter. Right, because he, I, yes, I did know that he went on the tour with his family. Yes, there is a download for the font that he uses, and then most importantly, there is a link to the Grimace Project. Check out this independent oh, no. software initiative to create a facial expression generator based on my explanation of primary expression mixing in chapter two. This is a face with sliders for joy, surprise, fear, sadness, disgust, and anger where you can adjust the slider <laughs> to uh, it's so I haven't quite figured out exactly how to work it here yet, but uh, you can, yeah, you can like randomize the emotions that the face is expressing. Um, when you and, said that, I thought you meant like grimace, like from the McDonald's <laughs> family of characters. <laughs> It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's quite something, but so it's got sliders for all those emotions based on hit the like sort of formula that he describes for the facial expressions. Yes, uh, that was, I thought that was very interesting. Um, so yes, he sort of gets into the idea we're sort of skipping around a little, but he gets into the idea that different expressions can sort of be combinations uh, at different levels of different emotions, almost like a, like an RGB color mixing yeah. kind of thing. Where, you know, it's like pity is like strong sadness plus soft joy plus like, you know, it's, a, it's just it's combining all these different emotions in order to create these the expressions that your characters have. And it is it's pretty surprising how like diverse and expressive he can manage to make these. Yeah, I do think it's helped along a little bit by the fact that he's able to put underneath like some some context, yes, which, especially which he, for some of the more specific ones. Yeah, which is something he talks about in the book as well, where like, you know, every every expression can also be informed by text, which helps to yeah. put things in the proper context. Like he has the example of the guy who has the big smile on his face, but then he's like telling his goons to carve you up with a chainsaw or whatever. Yes. <laughs> that that yeah so and that you know he gets into that a little later in the power of words chapter how words can work in concert with pictures to create these different types of sort of panels and different types of art uh but yeah so we start with him talking about important features for character design which are an inner life visual distinction and expressive traits, which (laughs) all make sense. Like this is what I'm talking about where a lot of it feels like 
it could be applied to any storytelling medium. Like the idea of giving your character interiority, like having like understanding their life history and how that would sort of inform their character. Um, and I liked his sort of idea that once you understand your character completely, then you can understand where the story will go because it's just a matter of putting the character in the situation than like uh, having an innate understanding of how they'd react. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's this section really got me thinking about like to, to further, I guess, sort of dive into the um, comics movies metaphor slash comparison um the extent to which like if the the writer is sort of like the writer slash director i feel like people often think of the artist mostly as just like the dp but they're also basically the actor or like all the actors because the the body language like the performances basically are all riding on the artist's ability to convey the things that they want to convey so Mm -hmm. it's like it's it's an aspect I think that is underrated in a lot of artists um, to be able to use like body language and facial expressions to communicate both clearly and also like subtly or or like to um, move beyond the sort of obvious expressions of emotion that are easily identifiable to some of the more uh, like kind of fine tuned uh, emotions that he he demonstrates expressions of um through yeah through through the body language through the face and then also through like the the what we know about the characters that that interiority um because sometimes like sometimes that that interiority has to be expressed just through the body language or the face which is like tough to do in a comic compared to uh like on screen or or in animation where you have like sort of the motion you can, you can read the shifting changes of the face or, or of the body and of how long you hold a shot, for example. Yeah, exactly. Um, Whereas like, yeah, like with the, the example he talks about early on in the chapter about like, Oh, a character raised in poverty may have trouble relating to a shopping addicted heiress. Like it's, it's not necessarily going to be easy to convey that. So like the look she has on her face is sort of like amusement slash, like a little bit of like very mild anger or like disgust maybe, but like it's, it's the kind of thing that like in film or on screen, you could just have like a quick cutaway of a person like rolling their eyes. Um, But yeah, but uh, for a static image, yeah, it's just tricky. Uh, artists uh, have a lot on their plates. Yeah, and I, you know, I think I think in any medium, like being able to express subtlety is certainly one yeah. of the hardest things to do. Like, it's very easy to go for something that's as broad and readable as possible, but it, that's sort of where the the true masters of their craft. But you know, obviously, I, I was thinking about actors as you were talking about that. That being able to sort of play muted emotion in a way that still comes across as like what you're intending it to rather than like, like he talks about in the book, like muted emotion can sometimes just end up looking neutral or Mm -hmm. distant. And so being able to play that and portray it in a way that feels real rather than just feeling devoid of emotion is, is a mark of a master. 
Um, we also see <laughs> a couple where one guy is reading Left Behind and <laughs> a woman is reading Origin of the Species, which is uh, a good I bit. I did forget about that. Um, but yes, uh, another very interesting thing that comes up um, when he's talking about character design here, which is when he gets into the idea of, you know, you know you'll know how they'll react in a given situation is him talking about how he modeled the characters in Zot after Jungian archetypes. Yes, I believe we talked about that on one of the Zot episodes because he talks about it at length in, not well, not at length, but he does allude to this in um, the like black and white collection that I have where he has like all the end notes after each issue. Um, yeah, he, he talks about, he or he, I have seen him talk about this a few times. Yes, where Zod is intuition, Jenny is feeling, Peabody is intellect, and Butch is sensation. Yes, I I did really like how he demonstrated it through the "Hey guys, want to crash the Oscars?" and <laughs> showed all of their responses. Yes, where Butch just says, "I'm hungry." Yes. Oh, Butch, great character. Till um, he turns down the wrong path. Truly. But um, you know I, what? He's that same fun-loving monkey we know and love uh, in the last uh, issue. That's true. So. Um, I, I also like in the background, Dumbledore asking Gandalf for an autograph who says, <laughs> hands off the cloak. Uh, I I also appreciate uh, that he calls out the all too common comics trend of same face in this uh. Uh, this section. I feel like there's a lot of even like professional acclaimed artists who have a very bad habit of basically drawing everyone with the same face, uh, which like I can appreciate like time constraints and, you know, there's a certain aesthetic and a certain style that a lot of popular artists have sort of made their name off of or, or um, is kind of at the source of their popularity. But like, I think I alluded it to it a little bit in our reinventing episode that like, I find even like Alex Ross has this to a certain extent, not that every character has the same face, but I do feel like he has a certain number of like stock faces that he kind of reliably goes back to, or at least stock features that uh, he leans on. Uh, and certainly there's like much, much more notable perpetrators, I guess you would say, even even to the point that like to think of a counter example, like I have a hard time of thinking of someone who I think does a good job of consistently portraying uh, a, like a wide variety of different faces or, or face types, at least among kind of like big name artists. Yeah. I mean, the example you go to might be manga, which is something that we touched on a little bit in the understanding episode. I think the idea that like, it seems like manga creators are so like they're able to find so much more diversity of genre and diversity of character, even, you know, working within like, you know, you're writing action comics for young men. Like there's so much variety in the types of comics that can come out of that. And by extension, the types of characters, which is also something he gets into in this. So we were a little ahead of Scott there, just saying, (laughs) Um, but I also like, when he talks, he talks about, I think he uses bone as an example. Um, or maybe I'm no, it's Walt Kelly. Who's that? Who's Walt Kelly? Walt Kelly. Uh, I'm not sure. Anyways, which, so, which page are you talking about? Uh, it's on page 69. Nice. <laughs> right next to the destroy panel. But yes, he uses the, he touches on the idea that these sort of broader, more simplified characters can still, evoke that level of subtlety that we were talking about and like that level of depth 
in the ways that they sort of bounce off of each other. So, you know, you can have a comic where the character is a little broader archetypes, but then by sort of getting into the dynamics of their relationships and sort of contrasting their values with each other, I guess, is where you can find that level of subtlety. Yeah. Then we get into, oh, we get into expression talk after this. Yes. Um, He talks about something pretty interesting, I thought, where he talks about he sort of found a way to distinguish characters by giving them unique eyes. Mm -hmm. Well, yes, he he had often talked about Zot's like signature squint. Yes. You know, and then you have obviously Deco very Yeah, the spiral eyes classic. Nine Jack Nine, very distinctive eyes. Even Jenny, like it 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 does kind of seem like that's sometimes just like how he draws female characters a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like it's a certain type he has, which is like I would almost call it like the Ivy face. Because <laughs> like it's the characters that are modeled after his wife generally that tend to have that kind of face. Mm-hmm. Um but yes, that that have this very distinctive look. The stretch where he goes on for a couple pages about like the musculature of the face. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was kind of bizarre. I, or yeah, it was just funny that he's like, this isn't going to be like a how to book or an anatomy textbook. But also here's like a couple pages about the anatomy of the face and which muscles do what. Yeah, it, it makes sense because like, even more than I think like sort of bodily anatomy, I think that facial expressions was such a big part of comics and like, yeah, having like, you know, he, we talked about already, like how sort of impressive it is that he's able to bring forth all of these different expressions in a way, in ways that feel distinctive from each other. And so I do think that, you almost have to <laughs> get into that. Maybe, maybe not because he does, you know, talk about, how to draw bodies without getting into the anatomy of bodies and everything like that. But yes, it, it is a little strange that he goes so in depth on the muscles. Um, speaking as well of both uh, same face and extremely good spot, uh, Scott bits uh, the panel where he has <laughs> says, just to make sure you don't start drawing all your characters to look like you is extremely <laughs> right. good where he is like kissing himself. Yes. <laughs> Oh, yes, it's very good. Uh, He Um, is, as they say, on one in this one. He also draws himself as a classical statue during this part. (laughs) Not for the first time, if I'm recalling correctly. (laughs) No, I don't believe so. Um, So he also talks in this section about something that I feel like I had some issues with in the Understanding Comics episode. Um, And I'm having a hard time, I think, getting my mind around or articulating exactly what it is that um, doesn't connect with me or, or that I disagree with, but he's talking about uh, on page 96, it's the resemblance and meaning scale again. Uh, and he says, symbolic expressions are closer to the written word in the sense that uh, their meaning is fixed regardless of how they're rendered, just as a word means the same thing, regardless of handwriting or font choice. Um, and like, <sighs> So, and then he has he has the word like he shows a bunch of anxious faces and then has the word anxious written out in a bunch of different fonts and it's true that like the meaning of the word anxious doesn't change based on font choice but i feel like font choice can still be extremely communicative especially if you choose like to to put one word in a different font as he he himself does throughout this 
where it's like, I just, I feel like he's short selling in a weird way, the impact that changing the font or changing the appearance of the word can also be evocative in the same way that like restylizing an image can be. Yes. But, but I think what he's getting at is like, that doesn't alter the core meaning. Like it, it might alter, like for example, the degree to which you're expressing that emotion or something like that, but it doesn't change the, the their inherent meaning. Like, I don't think there's a way you could write anxious that you could be like, Oh, he's actually happy or something. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking of a case where like, for example, uh, let's say it's a scene where like two characters are talking in a kitchen and one of them says, Oh, where's your roommate? And the other one says, Oh, he's not coming out with us tonight. He's feeling anxious. And you render anxious in like the really flowery script. I feel like that immediately (laughs) changes it to be like, Oh, this character doesn't actually think that uh, it's like any kind of legitimate anxiety. It's some sort of like, uh, you know, like highfalutin <laughs> anxiety, or like not not highfalutin, oh, big but like, city anxieties. Yeah, but more like he's like romanticizing the, yes, the I, same I sort mean. of general uneasiness with situations that all of us feel, but like casting it as anxiety. But it's actually like, yeah, I just feel like things like that are like comics is uh, a medium where you can uniquely use font like that that he's kind of overlooking here. Right. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I think that, yes, he, he may be uh, contradicting himself a little bit there in the, <laughs> in the pursuit of making a point for sure. Um, then we get into, you know, the geometry of poses, how poses can convey status. This is again, like very, very sort of hands-on, applicative technical things um scott draws himself as a hand (laughs) yeah i I like when he does uh similar to the like the line section in understanding comics i really think it's interesting when he's like which one of these two lines and they, they literally are just lines um is more proud and like you know there's the one that's straight up and then the one that's bent over and yeah it's it's just interesting the ways in which he demonstrates that like the even even when you reduce something to its like most simple form uh, you can communicate with it through like posture and and i wouldn't say exactly that these lines are subtle but uh i do think that it speaks to how yeah you can you can position a body in a way that communicates uh really effectively yeah and he gets into this with the sort of example scene that he writes which i thought was really interesting um where he sort of does like it's not improvised exactly but he has you know sort of a quick script he writes out and then he talks about the different decision making he can put into writing this like for example like he was like like he talks about sort of one of the characters is easygoing and so his body language might come across as neutral so then i'll give him something to do with his hands so I'll put a soda in his hand. So I'll put a vending machine there. And then the establishing shot can have the vending machine there, which I like then turns into a panel. I really like where you have sort of the establishing shot of the room with the one right, character like the sitting on one lounge. side of the room. And then he is 
the the clunk of the soda on the other side of the room like mm-hmm. just the way that sort of more practical decision making can create those sort of um evocative images when they're sort of combined in the right way i really thought was interesting yes i had something i was going to say about this and i have now forgotten it oh right now the guy who comes and sits next to the girl uh never would i ever no i was gonna say that it reminds me of the section in uh reinventing comics where he does like like a a panel by panel almost breakdown of a scene from uh city of glass by jason lutz um where it's just sort of like this this sort of like detailed commentary on like composition of panels and stuff is really i think at least absent from kind of comics discussion um i feel like there's a general this is true of sort of like all forms of media uh as far as like online sort of like fan discourse that i feel like people are not really good at articulating what they like or don't like about something be beyond like like often people will just say I liked it or I didn't like it. And if like kind of pressed to expound, they'll be like, Oh, well the writing was good, but it's like, well, what do you mean by that? Like what, what constitutes good writing to you? And then like that kind of more fine level of detail, I feel like people are, are not as good as expressing as amateurs uh, or as, as fans who um, are, are strictly consumers, I guess. Um, But like, professionals and media professionals and, you know, people who've made a study of it are much better at communicating it. But in comics, a lot of the journalists are fans who don't have any experience making comics. Like basically what we're doing (laughs) (laughs) to, to people who've never really like even attempted to make a comic talking about comics in critical ways. And so I feel like in the critical discourse around comics more so than a lot of other media, this sort of like analysis is absent outside of like a few really kind of specific uh, examples that I can think of. Um, And so he, yeah, he, he did it in reinventing comics with city of glass, just kind of breaking down, like, here's what this scene is telling you. And here's how you know that like, that's what the, what, what Lutz is telling you based on what he's chosen to include, how he's like framed the shots, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously here he's breaking down his own, um, like script and composition so he can speak to it very clearly and and set, like set up a scene where he can show you what he wants to tell you and then tell you about it um but it's just something i really appreciate because i don't feel like it really happens in comics like at all yeah and i think it's less about the you know whether like <laughs> whether we've made a comic or not or you know whether a critic has directed a movie or not and more right. about like you say like like the formalism of it um like the way that you can see the elements and sort of see what the creator is intending to do with their elements and then you can sort of judge how successful they are at communicating that or how successful their ideas are um but yes i totally agree that oftentimes that sort of critical eye is certainly missing from comics because I mean, I, I don't even know if your average comics professional would necessarily, well, maybe they would, would have this sort of like critical eye of it and understand why maybe they, for example, position a character in a certain way. I feel like a lot of that maybe would just come from like 
a natural understanding of how they sort of want things to look and how they want to set up a scene rather than being consciously aware of like, if I make a character do this, then that will convey this. I think it's more that like, I want to convey this. And so I will draw it like this. Right. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of them probably could do it to uh, some degree, at least mostly just because of like how much sort of thought goes into a page, especially like, it depends how the comic is being made, but often like the writer will have given them some direction about what they want coming across. If it's uh, like collaborative in that way. Um, and then, and then they'll have often, you know, spent some time thinking about it on their own or in conversation about it with a writer. And then they, you know, they have to spend hours working on a page. Um, so it's like, the the composition of a single panel takes so much time that I feel like it does get a lot more thought going into it. Even if it's not like what, what precise, like he, he talks in this section about uh, how Miller, the like um, obnoxious character basically like has positioned his hands um, to, to like hush people down and like show them like, Oh, you're going to like, I've got the scoop. Um I don't think necessarily that every professional is like, all right, so I want, I want Miller making the classic. I've got the scoop gesture, (laughs) like putting him together like that. But I feel like for, and and partly by design, but for a reader, you just see him leaning forward and it's like some totally unconscious part of your brain is like, he's excited. Like to, to yeah, that's what I mean. It's like it, it, I think even, and again, I'm, (laughs) partially just completely speculating here, but I think it's totally possible that like they have that, the the creator has that feeling as well, where it's like, he's excited. And so I'm going to drum like he's excited. And then sort of the, these kinds of things like the positioning and the placement of his body and all like the body language things, those just naturally come out of their intent to make them look a certain way. Right. I, I think what stands out to me is the difference between the audience where you might only be focused on one particular character or maybe two characters and, and kind of like unconsciously absorbing um, what these things are saying about those characters. Whereas the artist by virtue of having to compose the whole scene has put that thought into like, it's, it's like the mise-en-scene, right? Everything that's in the panel, they have had to think about at some level and made it like a deliberate choice to include. So it might like we might just scan over Miller and see like, oh, he's excited. Obviously, like the the body language for um, Carrie is that this character's name? Yeah, is like extremely negative, and she's got like the the like shock lines coming out of her head. But he talks also about the third character, who's like the the laid back goofball guy, about how like he's he's like not super excited to see Miller either. And that's like where the subtlety comes in where like as a reader before reading like the Scott section, I totally just like glided over him. It's like, he's the laid back one. He's yeah, just sitting even there. He's not really even like part of the scene, so to speak. But Scott as the artist is able to elucidate, like I've positioned this guy, like even though this guy's not really part of the interaction that's happening, I've also positioned him very thoughtfully as far as like the, the interiority, right? Like how he's mm-hmm. responding to this situation as well even though that's not like the first thought of the reader. It's good stuff. Yeah, exactly. Sorry. I was yawning <laughs> quite, quite. All right. 
not for any related reason. Um, but I think my, uh, my only complaint about this mini comic that he draws is that Mr. D, the teacher, is crazy, but he doesn't have spiral eyes. So I, I <laughs> just don't major, understand. <laughs> I don't understand how we, as the reader, are meant to understand that he's crazy. He does. He does really have quite the set of eyes, though. <laughs> Undeniably, <Hello>, children. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yes, it's a good bit. Um, there was some point where oh, it was you sent some picture of that that was meant to represent yourself, and then yes. I wanted to send this picture of on page one twenty one of like the circle drawing with arms and legs as, <laughs> as an illustration of me. But anyways, uh, uh, I think we could go on to chapter three, which is yes. the power of words, and isn't really so much about like script writing or anything like that or dialogue as it is about the way that the sort of juxtaposition or interdependence of words and images can sort of convey different things depending on the situation. Right. It kind of boils down to show, don't tell, but also like, don't forget how words can be used to show when they interact with pictures or like sometimes telling is part of showing. Right. And and that things can be used in different ways to convey different sort of ideas. Like, so yes, yeah, so basically there's sort of, there's these seven things that he goes into as ways that words and pictures interact, which are word specific, which is where the words sort of give all the information and then the image, you know, maybe illustrates or enhances that narration. It's It's most often narration, I think. Um, picture specific which is sort of the opposite the picture tells you everything and then the words either are in agreement or accentuate that um, the duo specific which is just like I feel like is very like old school comic book writing sort of technique oh, yeah. where uh, big big stan energy from... yeah, where you have the art and then the dialogue is just like restating what the art is already telling you yeah um, which <laughs> I think I think he he doesn't want to quite say like this is useless or like this is bad, <laughs> but it's definitely like the one where it has the most specific use cases. Yeah, definitely. I think um, at this kind of stage, like modern day comics, this is something that's like not really an instinct or an impulse for even like amateur creators anymore. No. But there definitely was a time where this was like <laughs> this was a real thing. Yes, and I, I liked I I did like his thought that you can use it to sort of portray like to make it to have a sort of classical or antique antiquity feel to it. Um, but then you have intersecting. So yeah, it's an, <laughs> I feel like the next ones are now. It's like now we get into the good ones. Yeah, <laughs> it's like intersecting where the words and pictures they have some overlap but they also like contribute things on their own, which I think is like he says, it's sort of, that's sort of the standard. Mm -hmm. Um, The interdependent, which is where they sort of, they each tell parts of one complete idea. Uh, The example he uses is like someone on the phone who's crying, but they're saying, I'm so happy for you, which I think can be the source of a lot of like the most effective moments of comics and of movies as well, where it's like, the audience understands something that is not fully understood by a character necessarily like dramatic irony pretty much. Yeah. And you know, obviously this case is very specifically an obvious case of dramatic irony, but the idea that 
the yes, that the the dialogue or any other kind of words in combination with the image, it can create something that is totally one piece or, you know, something that couldn't be communicated by one or the other. Um, parallel, which is basically they are essentially unrelated. I, I, I basically think of this as a scene transition tool. Yeah, definitely. Where sort of someone will trail off and then their, the end of their sentence will be superimposed over the start of the next scene. And then montage, which he sort of gets into is something that hasn't really been the one Scott is horniest for. (laughs) Well, anything that hasn't been fully explored, he's very into. Um, (laughs) Scott draws himself as an hourglass. Uh, Specifically as the sand. Yes, he's the the sand falling into the hourglass. Um, Speaking of SpongeBob, there's a great drawing of SpongeBob who is, I believe, watching the Goodyear blimp explode while a tiny Abraham Lincoln runs away. Yes. And Scott draws himself as a beaver question mark some kind of uh mammalian creature mm-hmm. a rodent um, yeah but i mean like it's like <laughs> again this is the stuff where it's like it's hard for me to talk about this exactly because it's just like scott giving a lesson about how these things work and i'm like yeah i yeah. see what you're talking about here yes uh, a lesson which is like clear and well put together and doesn't really invite or require <laughs> commentary <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> it's like you read this and then you understand it and you're good to go um, I, I do like the way he, he refers to, or he's quoting Will Eisner when he talks about how the word balloon is a desperation device mm-hmm. and sort of like when you can't communicate, it's basically when you can't communicate things with your art. And so you sort of have to state them out. Right. Um, and then it's sort of maybe the part that we would find most interesting uh, other than him talking about the big font and leaning back and yelling, um, which is that he gives these tips for people who are sort of writing for artists, like people who are just comics writers rather than, um, you know, cartoonists as you have described them to me or mm-hmm. artists. Um, the idea mainly like thinking visually is definitely one that makes sense. Um, you know, sort of thinking about how things are going to be rendered in the art. And then I, I do like this idea of the writer versus artist syndrome where both sides are trying so hard to impress each other that it stops becoming like a cohesive, an inter, yeah, an intertwined thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, this is a cool chapter. Um, sort of throughout i think this is pretty much essential reading for someone who would be interested in interested in writing comics i do also appreciate the section on sound effects where he kind of like to go back to that idea of like rendering a word using a different font or a different stylization can change not necessarily the meaning but can add information um which like, yeah, it's just interesting that obviously he understands that and like has this whole section on sound effects demonstrating it to be true. But yeah, maybe maybe not like the example that I used with dialogue. It just seems like maybe he hasn't uh, fully fully explored that idea or or maybe he just doesn't think it's necessary to elucidate on. Yeah, and I think maybe in the example that you were talking about, like maybe he was talking more about prose than comics. Yeah, or possibly. Like, you know, something handwritten. Um, but I don't know. 
I do agree with you that <laughs> it is weird that he uses that as an example when he's talked so much about the way that words are written can was sort of like this exclusive domain of comics to tell these kind of things that you wouldn't be able to understand otherwise. Uh, have you ever seen an Alan Moore script? No. Very are extra. Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Extra is, is truly the, the word for it. Um, they're, they're quite insane. I do. Uh, yeah. I feel like there's a, there's a degree to which people assume that if like a story is good, the credit for that should go to the writer and don't all like be, I think people assume that every comic script is like an Alan Moore script and that, that the artist is basically responsible for translating what Moore has written from the, like the page into images. Um, but I appreciate that he, he talks a bit about like the diversity of styles and like, so I'm thinking in particular of, uh, the comic superior foes of Spider-Man, um, by Nick Spencer and Steve Lieber. I, I don't think you would have read it. No, it's not like during like the superior Spider-Man days. It is, it is during the superior Spider-Man run. It's basically uh, a comic that is what people say the Ant-Man movie is, i.e., like a heist comedy with superhero trappings. Um, and the, the main characters are all like sad sack, uh, like down and out Spider-Man villains who <laughs> there's five of them, but they call themselves the sinister six because they want <laughs> to have the clout that comes with being the sinister six. Uh, and they're planning this heist. Anyways, it's extremely funny. It was supposed to be 12 issues and got extended to 18 by popular demand. And there's this, um, this gag that I'm going to look up and send you here quickly where one of the, like the leader of the bad sinister six um, is like on parole and has a um, like superhero parole officer who is uh, I think he's going by Mach seven at this point. Uh, Anyways, he's a superhero with like these huge sort of like butterfly wings but it depicts basically Mach 7 um, like going about his day eating at a diner in restaurant for some reason. He gets a text about uh, Boomerang, who he's supposed to be like the parole officer for. He goes to like leave this, and this is all like zero dialogue. He goes to leave the restaurant, realizes that with his wings uh, like fully expanded, he can't fit through the door. So he like folds them in. So they're going straight out directly behind him, walks through the door. And then the waitress calls after him that he's forgotten his phone. So he turns around and in doing so smacks a passing blind guy in the face with his wings. <laughs> um, and then like turns, like realizes that he's knocked out the blind guy. The waitress is staring at him and he just like unfolds his wings again and flies away. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve panels to communicate this gag across one page. And he basically like, in to, to contradict people being like, oh, Nick Spencer's a genius. He wrote such a funny run to, to be the, like the two of them to be like, no, this is collaborative. The script for this page is like, um, like Mach 7 gets a text about Boomerang, maybe a gag here with his wings. And like Steve Lieber conceives of like the whole joke, maps it all out, puts it on the page. Um, so yeah, I'll, a bit of a digression, but just to say that like, I think people have a sense that comic scripts are all like Alan Moore scripts, which would be like 
page one, panel one, close shot of phone. Uh, it's a yeah. stark phone that says, I know where you can find Fred Myers, Riverside Docks, 8 p.m., anonymous. Page four, panel two, he's like, you know, describing every single panel in extreme detail and would have laid out like the entire gag here, panel by panel. Yeah, uh, I mean, and- I, th- I think that even the idea for people that it's not a matter of a writer writes a script and then sends it to the artist and the artist creates the comic from the script, like that even the creative and like plotting process is much more collaborative than that, I think would be mm-hmm. surprising to most people. Yeah, there's a, there's like quite a few cases where it will be there, like there will be a credit for like a story to both the writer and the penciler and then it'll be like words by the writer, art by the artist. Right. Let's actually, let's take a quick break and then we will come back and with chapter four, shall we? Uh, well, yes, we shall. But first, I just want to <laughs> note that in the notes, he, I feel like, helpfully talks a bit further about um, word balloons because I think that he agrees that, or he, he recognizes like that in some ways, word balloons may have originated as like a desperation tactic, but have developed in the same way that like sound effect stylization has to become part of the story to an extent and like give some examples of how using different shapes and effects of word balloons can communicate a lot as well, which I think is worth, uh, worth noting. Yeah. And that, the, the bleed idea that he talks about in art as well is very much a thing with word balloons that can be interesting. Yes. All right, let's take five. I'm sure we'll run an ad or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's play, let's play the advertisement, um, Squarespace. Just we'll do the ad and then you can, we'll bill you. Is Gronk on the Buccaneers? Yes. Huh. He unretired. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. He was retired for like, I think a year. And then came out of retirement and went to the Bucks. Egregious. Um, all right, let's resume. <laughs> and we're back. That was... Oh, I'm leaving in the Gronk talk. Oh, oh okay. you're editing this. Whatever, <laughs> leave in the Gronk talk. Okay. Um, I won't leave in what came before that, but... Yeah, please don't. <laughs> we are back. That ad break or break of any kind was... It was, of course, for the purposes of us reading an ad from our sponsors and not for anyone who had to go do anything outside and in a different room of the house. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> we I think we're good to move on to chapter yes. four, shall we? Chapter five, I think. Mm, no, because we're this is world building. Isn't that chapter five? No. Wait. Oh, yeah, you're right. Never no. mind. I just read it wrong when I was looking at it. <laughs> Ooh, things are getting a little wild and woolly today, I will say. Truly. Um, but but we shall press on. Um, yes, so world building. Um, we start by sort of, he, he talks a little bit about establishing shots like we were talking about. Um, you know, he talks about the different tools you can sort of use to make in a shot feel different. The panel bleed the level of detail you go into in the art itself, the camera angle, the sort of creation of depth of field. Um, what, so what, so he, he gives his examples, which are sort of two sort of grassy field scenes. Um, 
the the second one <laughs> feels almost almost zodish i would say yes certainly albeit very detailed um what what did you think about these establishing panels uh we're we're a little out of my wheelhouse right now certainly in terms of the the finer art points and the the technical details um i i definitely get what he's getting at as far as um like the 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 ways in which the heightened level of detail the different sort of positioning things like that can be uh used to kind of create that effect i will say though that i would find like if the majority of the comic is in the style of the first establishing shot, like less detailed, uh, a little, a little more minimalist. And then there was an establishing shot with the level of detail that (laughs) is, is in the second one. I would be a little disoriented by it. Like not so far as to say put off by it, but uh, yeah, I would find it really odd to have such a kind of stark stylistic contrast um, that might like, be a good closing shot of a comic that otherwise was less detailed. Yeah, yeah, possibly. Um, it just it feels like if you're going to show me that you can do that, <laughs> I basically want you to do that the whole time. Yeah, well, it, I mean, the, the thing it reminded me of was that one Zot issue that focuses on Jenny's mom. Right. And how like lovingly rendered and detailed the environments are in that. Right. And how badly he blew his deadline. <laughs> yes. And how it basically sounded like it killed him. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think the main thing he is sort of getting across in a lot of this chapter is the idea that making these um, not only detailed, but also sort of, you know, uh, like opening up the, perspective um, maybe a little more dynamic yes extending the scene time-wise like you know you whether that's using multiple panels or a full page to set the scene that that sort of puts you more into the comic and makes it more experiential rather than that you're looking at something from afar which i think is something he well he says this explicitly that that's sort of something he saw in manga back in the day and this sort of now becoming more of a thing in western art right yeah i i actually think that like the the most impactful aspect of the second establishing shot is the way that he kind of opens up the perspective and and makes himself seem further away and captures like a bigger swath of the landscape i think if i was going to say like take one of the principles that he's talking about of the five that he describes and apply it to the first one to achieve as close as you can to the same effect that would be the one that i think most sort of uh works for me as far as like setting the tone yeah and and i think that that's accomplished by the panel bleed as well yeah um just that you know it, it gives you a bigger sense of scale and i mean like even in a story like this, which I mean, like, you know, we don't really know the exact story that he's telling here, but Mm -hmm. what appears to be a a pretty serene scene, a pretty calm scene, like even having that sense of scale in a scene like this can just sort of like, it can have different effects. Like it's not all grandiose, like tall building, big superhero kind of thing. It can also just like make it things feel very open and relaxed in that way. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, <laughs> so but... then, and then Scott gives a lesson, like, yeah, he talks about like perspective and drawing and like angles and things like that. It's just like, yeah, this is just drawing class. Yeah. This, this is an area where I feel totally out of my depth to try and speak to anything about it as far as like, 
yeah, he's he's tackling a very technical aspect of the art here, which like I don't think I ever got higher than like a C plus in any art class I ever took. It's it's not my natural area of uh, ability or interest. So I kind of just let him <laughs> take me along for the ride through this chapter. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm just like I I read it and I think that it's interesting. I look at his grids, <laughs> whatever they may mean. <laughs> yeah, even like so he talks about the one point, two point, and three point grid. I can see that like they have one like one plane, two plane, and three planes, and that's like as much as I can <laughs> understand it. Yeah, the way he talks about like the isometric viewpoint kind of yeah all like the like... all the perspective stuff is like technical at a level beyond uh what what i'm really capable of <laughs> understanding or engaging with yes and myself as well obviously um but also yeah he talks a little bit about um like the idea i think which is a very good one of presenting your environments as like environments that your characters are inhabiting rather than just the backdrop of their scenes yeah yeah it's interesting i was uh yeah it's it's interesting that he talks about how much like research and detail can um be a part of the world building and obviously like he talks as well about how like he he does that like little basically like stick person drawing of the Taj Mahal and says even when working in minimal cartoony styles good research can help you find the essence of a location um but it's just funny because I was reading this past week about like David Mazzucchelli's art in Batman Year One um which is very much influenced by Alex Toth's art who is uh like creator of Space Ghost I think is probably how you would best know him uh I think he created Space Ghost I think I'm remembering that correctly anyways influential 70s uh and earlier comics and animation creator but um he he like draws a lot of inspiration from Alex Toth in that book and one of his rules of writing is basically like eliminate everything from the panel that is not essential and so oftentimes like the art doesn't even have a background because it's just like it's so focused on like the character's faces or the action of a scene or um yeah, just just like things along those lines, very much about elimination of all superfluous detail and focus on the essential, like ultra focus on the essential. Um, so it's yeah, I'd, I I wish he kind of had a little more space in this section to talk about. Uh, I, I I don't know. I guess I feel like there's a weird emphasis on detail in this section that is not even necessarily representative of like Scott's style, let alone like other, other sort of schools and and practices. Um, And I know he's mostly talking about establishing shots and like things for the purposes of world building. And certainly like there are, there are establishing shots in Batman year one, (laughs) not, not to say differently to that. And like, I'm like, like Mazza Kelly does lots of work to establish Gotham city as an environment but I, I guess I just wish there was a little more clarity about when to when like when is the time for world building and when is the time for that sort of focus uh, and and like elimination of superfluous detail for the purposes of serving like the emotion of the story or the clarity of action or what have you. Yeah, and he does talk about that a little. Like he uses the peanuts as an example of like the very 
under detailed backgrounds. Yeah. Um, and sort of says like, you know, they, they're only, they're, they're necessary to give a little bit of context to the characters, but beyond that, they don't really like, you know, it doesn't need to be set up in an environment in the same way. Um, but yeah, again, like I think a lot of this book is about like showing you the possibilities and then sort of letting your instincts or your style or your sort of comics IQ dictate when to use those things. Right. Yeah. But yeah. Is, is there anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, I don't, I I don't like, think so. Again, like I said like, at the top, it's it's weird to me that this is its own chapter. Like it's quite short compared to the other chapters. Um but yeah, I, I, <laughs> I don't have too much to say about it beyond that. Yeah. And like it, yeah, it makes sense. I, I suppose that, you know, you, the chapter two is more about characters and then this becomes more about setting. Yeah. Um, maybe it's just the ordering of things. Like I feel like if this came directly after the character chapter, it might make more sense than like you go to the characters and then you go to the words and then you go back to sort of a more artistic and technically focused chapter. Right. Well, speaking of chapters about which we'll have a ton to say, <laughs> oh, let's move yeah. on to tools, techniques, and technology. <laughs> yeah. This is just like, like I said, this is, let me tell you what a pen is. <laughs> pen is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, I feel so insane today. <laughs> Uh, this is this is a fun bit though the sort of where he he does his little uh, like three minute doodle oh yeah and then he looks at it and goes hmm <laughs> and then he gets the Paul Smith are you familiar with Paul Smith yes he uh, I think he was the first I want to say person to work on Uncanny X Men oh no Dave Cockrum was first um, actually now that i'm yeah now that i'm looking at the names on the spines here paul smith came along a fair bit later um but yeah he is like a signature x-men artist from like the height of the the like claremont glory days right and so he he does his own doodle which is very good um and then and then you see him driving away on a motorcycle which is very good as well (laughs) um but yes and so which is basically just an introduction to him talking about different artistic tools to put in your toolkit talks about drafting tables talks about different types of pens and what they do pen is Mm -hmm. Uh, like i feel like (laughs) what's his pen is (laughs) this is more what i expected the book to be i think like it, it, it it's very detailed and granular and kind of I wouldn't say has no interest to someone who like is not actively like an artist who wants to draw comics but definitely has a little, a, a significantly less appeal <laughs> to those of us who are not looking at this strictly as an instructional tool. tool right. Kit. Yeah, I, I found in a weird way this kind of almost more interesting than the uh, the world building chapter, which was so like, I guess, art theory focused, which like, I'm not much of an art theory guy, whereas this is like, like these are like gadgets yeah this yeah. is like a gear show off uh <laughs> section where i'm like ooh, gear <laughs> like, cool <laughs> lines are thicker. Uh, <laughs> uh, well i think it also speaks to something too where like maybe maybe it's just that i feel like i've already got a better handle of recognizing 
when an artist is like doing a good job of world building or or something along those lines but this speaks to an aspect like probably the aspect of comics creation that i'm least familiar with um although i get like the perspective and and that like the art theory stuff is also part of that so maybe i'm wrong but i i do have an interest in this kind of like nuts Nuts and bolts bolts. yeah exactly (laughs) same brain um yeah just just like there is a part of me that when i see uh like a a nice a nice picture i'm like how'd they do that (laughs) um not not necessarily in terms of like how does perspective work in art but more in terms of like what tools did they use to do that like how do you how do you get an ink effect like that or a line like that Mm -hmm. um just yeah it i i guess i like being able to look at it at like a piece of art and say like oh that looks like they achieved that using like this type of brush or pen more than i like being able to be like like look at the same piece of art and be like ah a two a two point grid (laughs) i could draw it out over this image right yes which is yeah probably a more more concrete technical element of art than stuff like you know how they use perspective or what stuff like that like it's a little easier for us to understand i think is the main thing yeah and and there's just like cool things that like i didn't even know exist or existed where like he talks about that like the lettering um guide basically yeah the aims guide um to show you like how far apart to space like the word like that's that's the kind of like broken brain i have where i'm interested in like how do they know how far apart to make the kerning when they letter it um and and to be like i i guess it's just the kind of thing where like when someone said or if i read like hey this guy's a good letterer i want to be able to like understand why someone is a good letterer (laughs) uh in a way that like, yeah, the, like I said, the art theory stuff for whatever reason doesn't appeal to me in the same way as being like, uh, well, he must've used an Ames guide cause it looks very precise. I'm like a lanes guide. <laughs> um, so yeah, so he, he goes into all of these physical tools that you can use and then gets into, of course, his pet favorite, the digital, <laughs> digital side of things, which yes. he uses to create. Um, uh, th- I thought which, this part was interesting too. Oh yeah, though. no, no, it has a lot of interesting. It's, it's just a very Scott thing to be like, "This is what my computer can do." I feel like he should have had more of this stuff in reinventing comics. Maybe yes, and maybe like I mean, it also seems like things have it's become more, if not more sophisticated, than like sort of more streamlined almost. Like that is I, true. I think it's, it just makes more sense now than it probably did six years ago. Right. Like I'm, I'm imagining or not imagining, but I'm thinking back to reinventing comics that in the, in that one, his thoughts on Photoshop were like, my daughter's discovered that you can do these spirals. And in this one, he's like, and so I have uh, like 18 layers that I'm <laughs> manipulating discreetly. And like, this is how I stack them. Like it, it's yeah. Sophisticated is the right word. He's just thinking about, it seems like at least he's thinking about and engaging with the technology in more sophisticated ways. And what maybe... we were, and what we were talking about sort of like a paradigm shift in the terms of like, it's no longer about the new things per se that a digital program can do and more about how the digital program can replicate the tools of the physical world. Right. Yeah. And, and maybe just that he has a better sense now of like 
because at the time he's like who knows how these tools could be used to create comics in the future and here he's like here's how these tools are now used to create <laughs> comics in the future yeah um yes um well you you alluded to his chapter five and a half which you read is that correct uh or yeah not not like in depth it's it's nine pages of content at which are really more like four because they're like they're the the way the pages are shaped are like half pages of the standard comic book page like they're closer to a square than a rectangle or like the elongated rectangle of a comics page so it's basically like four pages worth of content uh and then another how many pages here five or six pages of notes um and he you know he talks about in the comic where that web comics they run into these navigational issues which <laughs> i think i think one maybe potential solution to that would be if comics were a cube for example <laughs> uh i do not engage uh, <laughs> i pretend i do not see it <laughs> that's, that's my bit too late i've commandeered it uh it is funny to see uh like which web comics are being referenced like just clicking through here like pvp i think he has in the book as well and obviously is here penny arcade questionable content uh it's funny to see being spot spotlighted yeah i I want i would be interested to i wrote this down i'd be interested to hear sort of what you think um sort of what the state of web comics now is like as compared to 15 years ago because it does feel like web comics are a very like web 1.0 thing and most of the stuff that's like it's either like you started then and you're still around now or well i guess that that's pretty much it (laughs) (laughs) it's sort of how i see it now yeah i honestly i don't know if i can really even speak to it because i haven't like actively followed a web comic in a really long time at this point like probably like almost eight years since i was like daily checking checking web comics and like following them like that mm-hmm. and the ones that i do still have interest in looking in on are the ones that were running like ages ago um i feel like the 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 like kickstarter scene has really changed things as far as like um now if you if you have a comic you either start it out online to like build an audience to do a kickstarter for it or you just go like straight to kickstarter it seems like a lot of things that previously i could see coming out as web comics now just go to kickstarter and raise like a thousand dollars and do a really small print run of uh, of issues for people who are interested um yeah, yeah I, I don't really know what the web comic scene is like these days yeah, and it also seems like it's like there's a lot of sort of like comics, like like you'll see a comic on Twitter that where it's like it's more of a one-off thing. It's not like one person making like a series of comics with the same characters and an ongoing story in that way, which I'm sure still exists. And maybe like you said, like we're just not as in that world as we were ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it does seem like things are more sort of fragmented and one-off which i think is maybe indicative of the internet as a whole like yeah it's like the like the daily strip format yeah like like you like you'll just see something by someone and like that one thing will get popular rather than a a creator will get popular in most cases 
Yeah, like thinking about it now, like my wife likes um, Strange Planet by Nathan W. Pyle. That's like probably one of the most successful web comics that's come out since I stopped like really following any web comics that I can think of as far as like um, selling physical collections as well and and being like a money making enterprise. And that lives on like Instagram, which is like a, if you're going to do like a daily format kind of like strip like that, that is like you know, 20 years ago, you would have been submitting it to newspapers for like syndication. Um, it seems like just posting like one, one strip a day on Instagram is kind of like the way a lot of people go now. Yeah, um, for sure. It's also funny. Cause like, I feel like, so the last web comic that I read that I can recall, like new, new discovery and then read up to current, uh, it was called strong female protagonist by Brennan Mulligan and Molly Ostertag which I found because they had like a few years ago, kickstarted a physical copy, uh, like a physical collection of the first, like, you know, 200 pages or whatever. And then I found a used copy in um, like a, a used bookstore, flipped through it, was interested, bought it, um, read through it and then like Googled it. And it was like, Oh, it's a web comic. It's like ongoing. <laughs> I can just read the rest like for free right now. Um, and then they went on hiatus like two years ago in the middle of the last arc and uh, haven't come back RIP. Um, but, but yeah, I, f- I just feel like now I'm, I'm way more connected to the sort of like mainstream comics world. And if I discover a new web comic, it's probably through something like that where like, I find the physical collection first and don't even realize that it started as a web comic. Right. Yeah. Um, and again, like this, the, the stuff that gets talked about here, it's a little dated, um, which, you know, is something that Scott talks about in reinventing comics that like things are going to become outdated yes. when it comes to computers. But yeah, the you know, 3D not... art is still looking uh, tough here. Well, yes. But it, in general, I don't think it's too different than the way most people create today. I wouldn't think, right? Like people still use like those Wacom tablet kind of things. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, I think tablets, like if you're gonna if you're gonna work in digital, a tablet is like a must-have. Yeah. Um, I did think it was funny. One of the creators that he like samples is John Allison, who at the time would have been best known as a web comics creator, but who now is like an Eisner winner um, for like, uh, like probably one of the better known and, and better respected like slice of life comic guys going right now. Um, so yeah, it's just funny to see him come up in 2006 as like, uh, like here's a, here's a prominent web comics person. And now he's like totally, a, uh, maybe not mainstream because like his his comics still come out in smaller runs but it's just funny to, to like recognize a name who I came to know as like a print comics creator right um, also Sprite Comics <laughs> Which... well that I was trying to remember the name of this one that is here yeah, it's the Final like Fantasy eight, one 8-bit eight 8-bit theater yeah something like that I feel like Brian Clevenger also is now like a print comics guy well, we're, we're about I'm to learn. Go- I'm googieing. I think yes, I am correct that he is also the uh, Eisner-nominated creator of Atomic Robo, uh, which is like a very well-loved comic by its fans. 
<laughs> Whoa. <laughs> no, yeah, no. Hold on. <laughs> no, 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 like shade intended there. I've never read it. Um, but <laughs> anytime I see it brought up, it's very like a cult classic kind of thing. It seems fans. <laughs> that's a, that's such a that's such a good way to talk about it. It's like, yeah, I understand it's very well liked by its fans. That's <laughs> how I basically would describe but like that's that's my interaction with Doctor Who as well. Seems to be very well loved <laughs> by its fans. <laughs> People who like it definitely are into it. Um, yes, but you know, like we said, it's just he's just talking about pens in this part. Uh-huh. Lots of uh, lots of pen talk pen is what he's talking about um but yes we oh, can move does, on he does uh, talk here a bit about font choice and but mostly yeah. about like make sure you choose a legible font which <laughs> yes agreed draws himself <laughs> we, as a million different word balloons that that's fun um but yes he's we, on the we are prepared to move on he worships the pen <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> oh, I'm going insane today. Um, <laughs> yes, we can move on to chapter six, which is your place in comics, which like, as we alluded to earlier, um, it gets into the less concrete elements of work, like sort of finding your own style, finding your own authorial voice. But as we said, sort of just boils down to him talking about some stuff he wants to talk about. Yeah, three, three, like, uh, reinventing comics leftovers basically so he's got yeah. understanding manga where he basically talks about like it's like a brief history of like japanese comics in america yeah which is really interesting <laughs> yeah it is it is interesting and i i really like the stuff he gets into he talks about like we alluded to earlier like the storytelling techniques that existed in manga at the time that he saw as being less present in superhero storytelling and like Mm -hmm. mainstream comic storytelling. Um, And all that stuff's very interesting. Um, He talks about Tezuka, his boy. Yeah. The Tezuka family tree is an interesting section. He draws himself as a monkey evolving into a manga. (laughs) Wait, that's not, not not literally, not literally evolving into a manga, but the, the text is him saying, just as in nature, a wide diversity of artistic species helped speed manga's evolution. And the picture is him evolving into his normal self from a monkey. Mm. The, he did that in Reinventing Comics, too. What oh, page sure. is that on? <laughs> 218. It's, but no, it's, it, it's not as caveman as the Oh, yeah, the, yeah it is. is different. Um, but yeah, so, so he, he goes over all this stuff and he yes. his sort of thesis is that all of that stuff exists to make the reader like sort of come into the story more, which is what we were talking about with the panel bleed and the establishing shots that that sort of draws you into the world. So you feel more like a participant rather than a spectator right. in the story. Yeah. It's funny looking at these, these pages because I feel like manga has never really appealed to me as much as comics do. And like, I have read some manga, but ultimately it was just sort of like, I'd, I'd prefer to focus on other things as far as comics consumption. But looking at these art samples, like obviously I've already read, uh, I think I've read everything Brian Lee O'Malley has ever done. He's obviously very manga inspired. And then he's got another sample here uh, of art by Amy Kim Ganter and another one by... Oh, this maybe is just a drawing he did of a girl reading manga. <laughs> so maybe never mind. But seeing those ones, I'm like, oh, I like I like the look of that art. I would be interested to read that person's stuff. But I'm like, 
but not manga. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> just the manga inspired art. I mean, also, so it's like also the stuff that a lot of that's and again, like manga is like comics, you know, like it it covers such a diversity of styles mm-hmm. that I think maybe gets a little bit obscured. And in the same way as superhero comics, maybe a little less so that that when people think of manga or anime, it's usually the like super long running shonen manga about like young heroes learning to power up and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have a good sense of how much crossover there is generally, uh, at least like. I mean, I don't think that most manga readers read a lot of Western comics. I'm not really sure about vice no. versa. Um, I would be curious about that as well. Um, like I would say, I mean, in terms of like total pages, I've probably read more manga, but I mean, I, I, I'm not super experienced with it either. Um, you know, obviously my boy Naruto is showing up in some of these, obviously a a good friend of mine. Um, but yeah, I think, I think sort of like a lot of what gets sort of talked about as stereotypical manga, like even like the Brian Lee O'Malley stuff, I think it's like, it very much screams Western artist doing manga inspired art to me, which was a very big thing at this time. Like mm-hmm. I, I was talking, I think I mentioned this earlier, like there's so much, it was like, what if Batman was anime? Just like, okay. <laughs> like this doesn't that, even look that good. could happen. <laughs> like, you, you did this. <laughs> It doesn't really look good. Like it, it shares no other characteristics of like, it's just a Western superhero story or like it's a Western superhero story, but he's in Japan and he's a samurai mm. or like whatever. Casting aspersions on DC animated film, Batman samurai. I think that's very specifically <laughs> what I'm referring to. Yes. Uh, I have watched that. It was not very good. I'm the designs are cool. I'm shocked. Yeah, I mean, like, it's always, like, it's, like, it's a cool design, but you, it, I don't think you really know how to, like, make manga or anime, so. Yeah, well, that's, like, a, a, that's just, like, a thing in comics, I feel like, all the time, is people put, will share or, like, do fan arts, or a, an artist as, like, a, like, a creative exercise, basically, will share a thing he did, where it's, like, hey, I did this popular character, but, like, the blank version. Style. Yeah. yeah. Um, where... Yeah, and, and people like, and they're always really cool designs, and they kind of like get the imagination racing. And people are like, "I would buy the comic of that instantly," but then it's like, whenever it does actually happen, like I can't think of very many examples where a good character design was successfully parlayed into like an actually good comic. I feel like Spider Gwen is the last time I can think of uh, a character who basically like got got big on the strength of a good design and I actually like enjoyed the book. Yeah. And there's a lot more to that character than the design, obviously. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, Scott gets into this in the book that like, it's like, there's a lot of stuff that will teach you how to draw manga or manga style art, but there's a lot more to manga than just having a unique art style. Yeah. Um, also the, Amy Kim Ganter panel, it looks like Eureka 7, which is... Oh, really? Right, don't you think? That's oh, what I thought oh, like instantly. stylistically it looks like. I thought you were saying like it's from Eureka 7, and I was like, uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think so. That's not right. I don't think Eureka 7 is by a person named Amy, Amy Kim, Kim Ganter. Ganter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, I guess, kind of. Anyways, just wanted to point that out because I know you watched that. I did watch that. Um, but yes, and then we get into... Oh, yeah, I was wondering, like, sort of, what do you... Do you think that we have sort of seen a an intermeshing of the stylistic... Some of the stylistic choices of manga into Western art? Or is do you think anime and manga is still sort of seen as other? Um, like, in terms of influence... Yeah, not in terms of like direct art style and the way that he's talking about with some of these people, but more in terms of like the 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 deeper things that he's talking about, like sort of the the different stylistic tropes, maybe. Yeah, uh, I don't feel like I know the the like manga stuff well enough to say, um, but it does see, like it's. I mean, Scott does, and it seems like he believes that the a lot of crossover has happened and maybe there's room for more still but uh Mm -hmm. yeah i i mean it's we're definitely at a well but then this is getting a little bit back to um what i was saying earlier about how many like primarily western comics readers also read manga where i was gonna say like we have reached the point as he talks about where manga is more widely read probably than comics. But then I'm like, but are the people who are entering comics as a career or aspire to be comics writers, how, like how many of them outside of this trend that we've kind of talked about, like came up reading manga and are like, I want to bring that manga sensibility to my work or I do bring that manga sensibility to my work. Yeah. I guess maybe a lot of people that, consume manga like they don't really like think of it as comics like they think of it as its own thing and so maybe it never occurs to people like other than like fan art and stuff that like you could make your own comics right in like your own style and have that be like a thing that gets published in an american or canadian publication right and it may also be the case that like i'm i'm thinking as i tend to do primarily of writers um where if even if you have a writer who like cut their teeth on manga and thinks very visually in like a manga inspired way, if they're working with an artist who doesn't have that background, it's probably not going to come through. Right. Yes. I, I would agree with that as well. Um, and then we go to the second essay, which is talking about genres this then, is actually where the Tezuka family tree is. I, yeah, I was going to say, so like, good of turn. He, he starts talking about manga again. <laughs> oh, manga the freak. other amazing thing about manga is, <laughs> yeah, but but it's also it, it's a very interesting point that like his basic argument is that like, I mean, it's it's almost you could argue similar to Jack Kirby, but his his sort of case is that Tezuka was so broad in his influences and like the things he did that just his output alone like could create so many offshoots of work that that like helped shape the whole like identity of manga that you can have all these like vastly different stylistic genre trappings yeah and still you know have it be under one umbrella whereas i think like with american comics it was mostly like i guess like jack like jack kirby did that but mostly it was just for superhero comics and so only superhero comics grew out of that for the most part yeah it's it's weird the like the whole superhero thing is just very weird like i don't i don't think anyone really understands why they have the cultural hold that they do um 
because Jack, like Jack Kirby, for example, best known obviously for his superhero art, but did lots of like romance comics, did lots of war comics. Um, but I'm like, yeah, I part, part of it is like the, the whole comics code authority thing and the way in the fifties, um, every basically like every other genre of comic except superhero was basically like taken out back behind the shed and shot uh, <laughs> by the, by the restrictions that the comics code authority placed on them. Um, but like superheroes were already bit like they be Superman debuted in 1938, immediately a huge hit. Um, probably the fifties was like the only decade where I wouldn't say definitively superhero was the dominant genre. Um, and then obviously with like the Marvel era debuting in the early sixties, like the sixties is totally defined by the superhero. And then from there on out, it just has been like the genre that is predominantly associated with comics, but it's, it's just, yeah, it's a weird thing where it's like, it's never really gone away from having mass appeal because like the X-Men movies started like 20 years ago and had huge appeal. Spider-Man came out in, 2002 and like was a huge hit and has a big following to this day like marvel is 23 movies deep on the cinematic universe and like 13 years and and is still such like a monolithically popular property that like is like the most popular artistic property in the world yeah and, and like i feel like it's been years now that people have been saying like people are eventually going to burn out on superheroes and it's like, I don't know, maybe it's true, but, you know, we're like going on 80 years now. And for some reason, you know, people still seem to be pretty crazy about superheroes. Right. Yeah. And I, I like you said, like, it's it's hard to fully understand why. Like, I think it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy thing to some extent that like superheroes were the dominant genre for so long. And so people associate comics with superheroes. And so when a comic comes along that isn't superhero people sort of are like, what is this? Because they don't really have the conception that comics aren't just superheroes. Right. And, and another part of it being such a dominant industry force is that like a ton of creators end up working in superheroes at some point or another. And also like a lot of them grew up reading superhero comics and part of their, at least part of their love for comics is rooted in superhero comics. So it's like, yeah, it's like to go back to Kirby, could he have like inspired people to make romance and war comics? Like I think he could have, but for, you know, whatever reason, superheroes dominate the American industry. And so as a result, you get like, his superhero work is his most popular and recognizable work. His most financially successful work. I think most people would say his most creatively successful work. So you get a generation of artists who are inspired by his superhero work and make superhero stories. Um, and so it, it just, yeah, it's self-fulfilling prophecy to an extent, like you're saying where obviously you have like the art crumbs and the, the Spiegelman's and like all the alternative people who make a huge impact on the industry and the medium without ever working on a superhero book. But so much of the industry seems to at least like the, the corners of the industry that Scott runs in and that uh, like I, I run in for example, and you know, the, like when pe- the what people are talking about when they say the comics industry, so much of it is hinged on 
um, the superheroes that it feels like now anyone who makes an impact is going to do so through their superhero work or will do so through something. And then the dialogue will be like, Hey, did you know that they also wrote the Punisher for like 25 issues? You should check that out too. If you like this thing, like things like that. Yeah. Um, and another thing about Kirby is that um, I really like how he turns into a rock. <laughs> Certainly. Wow, you, you know so that. <laughs> Sorry, I mean... <laughs> I the old prospector's here. He's slapping his knee. Oh, but yes. <laughs> um, yes, and so, yes, uh, just to conclude the genre talk, he basically is just like, yeah, you can work within a genre and that's chill. But <laughs> Read you more genres be, is the... Yes, and like that if you're working within a genre, probably you should be wanting to like move the genre forward, not just master the tropes. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then you have the third essay, which is about comics culture, which to me is very reinventing comics, but I do also find very interesting. As we mentioned towards the beginning of the episode, he basically puts comics creators into these four groups based on sort of their shared aspirations and values, which are the classicists, who are devoted to beauty, which is like technical, classically inspired work. Uh, the animists who are devoted to content, which are focused on like stories, characters, and emotions. Lynn Johnston and her ilk. <laughs> I liked the Lynn Johnston. I like I, he continually uses Lynn Johnston. Yes, he I'm does. Like, I have nice. nothing against Lynn Johnston. It's just funny that she seems to be such a reference point for him. It is funny. And I'm like, uh, yeah, she is, I guess, very, she is like maybe was sort of like an example of a pretty like sentimentalist maudlin <laughs> creator. Uh, anyways, the formalists who are de- it's devotion to comics, sort of figuring out what the form is capable of experimenting within the form. I think very clearly Scott falls into this camp, at least, you know, primarily. Um, and then the iconoclasts who are devoted to authenticity, connection to reality remaining true to yourself and sort of the platonic artist ideal that scott was has brought up several times in the Mm -hmm. past um and that there there is overlap but that usually you can tell what someone's most and least does are you know desired or what how how high their meter is on all of them yes um and that that's interesting (laughs) (laughs) good good stuff do you have one of these that you gravitate uh, towards I would definitely say animist. Yes, me as well. I think most readers uh, are most interested in reading animists. Yes, and that's what he talks about. Sort of the, like it's like you're sort of, you start as an animist and then you sort of he basically called us casuals. Kind of yeah. Well, he 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 says something about the animists. Like he's sort of saying that each of these fields has their own use out of them, and he what he says is the animists have created more readers than the other three tribes put together and are our most valuable assets. So I think that that's what he's talking about, that when you first get into comics, you're connecting to the stories and the characters and things like that, rather than, you know, like obviously it'd be pretty hard for someone to come in as a formalist because you can't like deconstruct a genre without understanding the genre first. Let me get this straight. First, this guy's going off about what pen is and now he won't shut up about assets. What? Gross. <laughs> what? 
<laughs> no. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> Mostly at how much you didn't like that. I'm just I'm baffled. <laughs> Uh, uh, and he again, he again uh, sort of relates these back to the Jungian archetypes with yes, the classicist being sensation, which doesn't really make sense. Yeah, Butch uh, strikes me as a real classicist. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Perfect overlap there. And Jenny is an iconoclast, I guess, kind of, but not really. Um, the yeah, I would. These are not really the uh, the labels I would put upon them. But anyways, it's it's an interesting thought. Same. It's a it's a Scott thought. Yeah, <laughs> it's a Scotty thoughty. Certainly. But yeah, that's and then the, then I'm, <laughs> that's and it. Then it's like, over. It's just, <laughs> just some thoughts about that. Yeah, it um, is. It is funny that these are just like where he wants to go out. That he's like yeah. here. Here's a few like three more random thoughts, and uh, now I'm out. Yeah, not he's not quite out. There's chapter seven, which you know finally we're getting well, to making comics. Yeah, the <laughs> that's epilogue. the tip. Yes, which is basically just like, this is hard. It can be hard to find opportunities. You'll go through a lot of ups and downs if you devote your life to this. But, you know, it's probably worth it if it's something you're passionate about. Yeah, I like uh, I liked the analogy he uses for quote-unquote breaking into comics. And he says, getting a job in comics these days is more like catching a moving train that never stops at the same station twice. Which is like, I feel like I read another creator describe it as uh, an industry where once you break in, they find the hole you got in through and brick it in. <laughs> like, yeah, fill it fill it back in and reinforce it so no one can ever come in the same way again. Um, but yeah, it's it speaks to, yeah, the elusive nature of comics. Why I would never want to be a professional comics creator. Yeah, I, <laughs> it is definitely something that, Re, like reading it did sort of like reinforce like I do love comics and like being a comics writer would be a cool job probably but I don't really think it's something that I would like have the stomach for yeah I don't even know if I think it would be that cool of a job <laughs> if you've ever been on Twitter it's true but you know like <laughs> in a more general sense yeah, I guess. I'm not... Uh, <laughs> you seem unsold. I, I just feel like... Uh, I mean, as someone as someone who is personally, like, is interested in, like, writing professionally in some capacity, it would be on my, on my long list, let's say, of right. jobs that I would want. I just feel like if I was going to work in comics, I would be more interested in being, like, an editor than a writer. Well, yeah, that's, that's sort of you. <laughs> that, <laughs> that does make sense. Um, yeah, and then basically he says good luck and that he loves us. <laughs> yeah, comics is a blank page. Uh, we're all like Deco after he wipes the world clean. Um, what if you drew a cube? <laughs> <laughs> I pretend I do not see it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so making comics, what do we think? Um, I feel like we are <laughs> our thoughts on it are partially, um, illuminated by the way this episode is like <laughs> it's like we are positive about it but we are sort of like struggling to like find things to say about it which is just like it's just not it's not for us like we're not the target audience by any stretch like people who have no artistic ability people who have no interest in becoming artists <laughs> people who probably don't want to work in the comics industry like that's it's not that's not really who it's directed at 
And yeah. like I said, like if I were an, if I were an aspiring artist and I like had some ability but didn't really know how to like make a comic, I would be so into this. I do feel that I'm a little bit higher on it than you. Maybe just more like interested in these aspects of comics than you. It's definitely um, engaging. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, or like you said, I guess positive. Um, certainly, I think like understanding comics is easier for people like us to engage with and, and maybe more um, like, I, I guess reading this, I'd never got that same sensation that I've described in understanding comics as having my brain unfolded. Um, yes. And and part of that is because it's building on ideas that have already been presented to us in understanding comics. I, yeah. I don't even, I don't even know what this would be like to read this cold yeah like i feel like you have to have that base level of understanding comics in order to like make sense of this in a way yeah i tend to agree i do yeah i agree that if someone was an aspiring comics creator asking me a person who's never created a comic for advice for some reason i would say have you read making comics you really <laughs> yeah. should yeah uh which is cool like because like in the same way that understanding comics is like sort of a history and theory textbook and like feels very definitive on that regard. Like I think this is a pretty definitive book about that. I would recommend to someone who wanted to make comics. Yeah. And and I would say I would even still recognize it to just someone who's interested in like the, the formal elements and craft of comics. Cause I think there is a lot to learn here about why your favorite comics work. And if that's something that like interests you as a consumer of the media, I think it's still worth reading for that reason. Even if there are chapters or sections that are probably not going to speak to your interests as directly, or will be maybe a little bit technical for your level of engagement with comics, but still I think has, yeah, uh, is a, is a rich uh, vein for any, anyone who likes to think about comics to mine. Sorry, the structure of that sentence was weird. Uh, you reminded me of Gumby mining those veins. Uh, uh, you reminded spoilers. me of is mining those veins. Oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> cut that, cut that, cut that. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Um, but yes, and then he, he does close. He has the final thoughts uh, in his notes page for the last uh, chapter, which is, Uh, He says at the beginning that there are no rules you need to follow. If you're curious, though, I do have some rules I try to follow myself. Here are four. Learn from everyone. Follow no one. Watch for patterns and work like H-E double hockey sticks. Bleep. Exactly. Um, Which I I think is like the sort of very sums up his philosophy very well. That he, he doesn't treat himself as an authority of anything. He just sort of tries to learn as much as he can and pass the savings on to you as it were (laughs) yes um the bibliography we've never really talked about the bibliography for any of these books or like the art credits but i feel like there's a ton of resources here i mean anyone who's ever written a research essay knows the first thing you do after you found a good good source is go to the bibliography and steal all their sources uh and certainly that's also true here like it, it feels like there's tons of books that I've never read or heard of here that if I wanted to continue pursuing any of this stuff, like there's a great, there's a great reading list, like sitting waiting for me at the end of this book and, and all the others. Yeah. And and like, yeah, the, the amount of art reference he has to provide examples of his work is always really interesting. And like, 
yeah, it's like it's practically a history lesson in and of itself. Like if you just look like looked at what every person he referenced is and like what their work is, then you would learn a ton about comics. Yeah. I do kind of miss the folksy DIY stuff from understanding comics where it was just like him recreating <laughs> him re- panels re-drying. himself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also the, the also by Scott McLeod section at the back uh, includes understanding comics and reinventing comics and reinventing comics has a blurb from the creator of the Sims, encouraging anyone who works in interactive entertainment. That's what that's in my version of the book to read this book. Yes, I have that as well. The great will write. Yeah. Been um, playing a lot like... of Sims lately myself. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. My number one tip is that you should get a Sim, um, like max out the writing skill and the the writer aspiration as fast as possible. Because once you do that, you can have them write the book of life and dedicate it to other Sims. Um, and then if a Sim who has the book of life dedicated to themselves reads that book of life, <laughs> it fills all their needs and it takes like 10 seconds for them to read it. So if you, especially if you've got a large household, like if you're having a hard time managing all the needs or feel like I would be able to get a lot further with my career or whatever. If my SIM could stay up all night, instead of spending uh, like aspiration reward points on those, those traits that will let you do that, just get yourself a book of life. It's a huge time saver. Yeah. Um, have I told you about the joke I want to put in a movie that I eventually write? <laughs> no. So it's like, a, it's a guy and he's like, it's like a really like nerdy, like low status guy. Uh-huh. A um, David type. A David type, and so like he loves he loves playing The Sims, but he's he's getting cucked by his wife in The Sims. Okay, that's just the joke. It would just be like a right, one, right, right. Like, like it doesn't follow joke. his his like playing The Sims. It's just like the start of his like his friend comes over and he's playing The Sims. He's like, "What's going on?" It's like, oh, "Yes, exactly." My wife's cucking me. <laughs> yes, and it would be shown on the screen, a la right. the Office episode of A Second Life, of course um uh, it's not bad <laughs> it's good come on if you saw that in the movie you would laugh you would absolutely laugh uh, um so yeah look out for that at some point um i think that will just have hold to on it. hold on oh, wait, you want to talk about awards of course oh. uh no eisner nomies for scott or the book i just i just want to point out that <laughs> the super bowl is on right now not to date us but I just wanted everyone to oh, understand. You, you're, the, I see. you're wanting the to be watching the situation. Is that why you asked to record earlier? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I wish I'd known. Um, I'm into a, I'm into hand egg. Okay. No one. Uh, no. No nommies for Eisner's. Uh, again, we're in an interesting time here for the nominees. Like Fables, uh, Darwin mm-hmm. Cook's Tenure on the Spirit, which is funny considering all the spirit talk and and Will Eisner talk spirit. in this book. <laughs> Ed Brubaker's Captain America and Daredevil. Uh, Walking Whoa. Dead is on now. All Star wow. Superman. So this is like uh, kind of like this. It's 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 pretty good age. Like it's like David Golden Age for sure. Some of my like favorite comics are coming out. Uh, American Born Chinese by Gene Lu and Yang wins Best New Graphic Album, which is the category that uh, you would think making comics would be up for, but it's not. I'm sure we'll talk about Gene Lu and Yang at some point. He's a creator I'd like to cover. He does get a Harvey nom for best biographical, historical, or journalistic presentation. The other nominees, of course, uh, Comic Art Magazine, The Comics Journal, The Overstreet Comic Price Guide, and of course the winner, 
Art Out of Time, colon, Unknown Comic Visionaries, 1900 to 1969 by Dan Nadell. Sounds oh, like a book that Scott would be all over. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like he Scott probably voted for that book. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I don't believe he uh, was nominated for any other categories, and I am correct. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, I mean, like, I mean, I think this is a great book, but I feel like it's like if you write understanding comics, <laughs> it's going to be hard to like be lauded in the same way. Wow. A tough, a tough beat for best single issue uh, or story fun home pride of Baghdad, uh, the Sergio Argonis issue of solo uh, and a few other things losing out to civil war. Number one. Oh, Uh, (laughs) in like, I, I didn't mean to react that harshly, but like, come on, that's a, that's a, yeah, that's a hindsight 2020, I think, or 2021, I should say. Um, I, I don't know many people who would stand by that vote now, especially at the Harveys, which I feel like usually yeah. has established itself more as the one that would like be be supporting the small press and independent stuff. Like, I can't believe Fun Home lost the Harvey to Civil War number one. <laughs> I do feel like Civil War was like, the first time maybe i'm wrong but it's like the first time in a long time where i was like like it was kind of like crossover events are back yeah yeah it kind of was um and especially like crossover events are back and this one is about like post 9-11 america right and like i guess sort of ties into like stuff that was going on with captain america at the time which was interesting yeah anywho Anywho, that's awards talk. Uh, I looked up sales numbers and it did not clock in the top 100 uh, <laughs> for uh, collected editions slash like graphic, graphic albums, novels. graphic novels. Yeah, not not in the top hundo, which is a shame. I think more people should probably read this. But oh yeah, there there's probably a lot of people who this is exactly what they are either like what they're looking for or what they like don't know they want to read what they don't know that they should know yeah yeah but well yeah next week on to the sculptor uh the sculpty guy and then gumby uh, after that no spoilers okay we've talked about gumby (laughs) as i say on the sculptor episode we've talked about the gumby episode like five times we haven't recorded as i mean as i'm going to say (laughs) All of this is evergreen. Okay, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Bye.